podcast this week. It's the last episode of the year, folks. And we have stuffed a whole bunch of A-listers into Santa's sack as a special Christmas present to you. Who's that in the wrapping paper with a pale blue eye on it? Why? It's Christian Bale, star of the pale blue eye. And what's this? A glass onion? That can mean only one thing. We talked to Kate Hudson and Jessica Hennig, stars of Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. And what could this massive Hugh Jackman cardboard cutout denote? Oh yes, that's right. We talked to Hugh Jackman, star of the forthcoming movie, The Sun. All that, and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that met Dougie at the weekend. So clearly, we're on Santa's nice list this year. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week I'm joined for the final show of the year, folks. The final regular podcast of the year by two colleagues of such lethal cunning we're in the Jazz FM studios, and I'm looking at him right now. He is a figure of Christmas kindness and goodness, goodwill to all men this year, even our great big fucking nerd, James Dyer. Ho, ho, ho. Now you have a pilot TV podcast. That's right, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm not wearing my Christmas jumper this week, unfortunately. And you are. You are wearing a festive, muppety Christmas jumper. I am. I am. I was, uh, yes, this, is, this was uh, sent to me. Um, by the Muppets. Uh, by the Muppets themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I love it. I love it. And I've been introducing Little Drinking Game to the Muppets and to the Muppet Babies, which I'll talk about in a few seconds. But first of all, huh. you may be asking the people at home, where is Helen O'Hara? Where is Helen O'Hara? I want Helen O'Hara. I asked for I don't know why Arnold Schwarzenegger is asking for Helen O'Hara, but we are where we are. And, uh, uh, and yes, people want Helen O'Hara on the Empire Podcast, but she's not here, is she, James? She's, she's not, not here. She's, she's not, not here, here in studio. However, due to the magic of modern technology, Helen is patching into the Empire Podcast Jazz FM studios even as we speak all the way from Port Stewart, Northern Ireland. I would give out her postcode, but she frowns upon that kind of thing. It's Helen O'Hara. How are you? Hello, hello, hello. I'm very well, thank you. I've been eating nothing but wheat and bread and potato bread and butter and more bread. The whole for the for the, this whole week, so it's been great. Oh, that's nice. Has your has your accent become twenty percent thicker? Uh, yes, probably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, just to make myself understood, you know, you have to, don't you? Um, so it's You're been like, all sticking. <laughs> out. I actually pa- I drove past Banbridge yesterday. It was looking, you know, the best way present. to experience Banbridge. I would say, uh, <laughs> but that's good. How was it? How was it looking? It, it it still exists. So you know, that's about all you can hope for. I think. Um, yes, <laughs> yes, the IRA tried, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we, we, we withstood, we withstood their best efforts. Uh, so yes, welcome, 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 welcome. Helen, you're not here today, obviously, in the studio. Uh, James is in the studio. I have brought James a slice of Tom Cruise cake. Uh, but no! don't you worry, don't worry. <gasps> I'm going to save and freeze a slice of Tom Cruise cake. <sighs> you know, you know Thank the uh, you know in Star Wars when the little mouse guy gestures to the barkeep to give him the drink. <coughs> That's what I'm doing right now for I'm those listening. I'm not going to give you Tom Cruise cake. No, 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 no. It'd be just like one of those stupid cooking shows that you like. Well, I will, I will sample it and I will give you a live verdict on the cake. We had people complain whenever we ate stuff on the podcast before. You know, it's, to some people it's like ASMR. Some people might even be sexually awakened by the sound. I'm of very Steyer. happy to arouse people by eating, eating a slice cake. of Tom Cruise's cake yeah. uh, and I'll explain what I'm talking about in two seconds but I feel we should also maybe spare the audience the, the sound of your lips smacking and chewing I disagree yeah. okay <laughs> 
<laughs> You'd have to get past me. I mean, in fairness, he eats very fast. I do. He does. He eats very, very fast. He would inhale it very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, shall we explain what this is? I mean, it's a, it's a yes, cake I think from Tom Cruise. It's, it's a fairly cake. self-explanatory. It's a cake. It's a, it's a cake uh, presented to uh, various people, not just me, not just me, integrity is Chris Hewitt, yeah. uh, <laughs> but uh, to, to other people in the, uh, in the film industry mm. every year, Tom Cruise, as well as jumping out of planes like a maniac uh, and shooting Mission Impossible 8 for what seems like forever, uh, he manages to find time, and I believe he does this himself, Yeah, he bakes to all bake of them cakes that are sent out to people uh, and you know this year uh, usually I've got my face pressed up against a window going oh what's oh, come on give me a slice of that Tom Cruise cake it looks nice uh, and it's made with actual bits of Tom Cruise <laughs> I don't that? think that's true it's true it's absolutely true um, <laughs> and uh, and this year the other day I was at home knocking the door ringing the doorbell it was Tom Cruise it was Tom Cruise <laughs> Hanging from the ceiling, uh, leaping through my balcony, and I was disappointed, if I'm honest, by the method of delivery. Because if you're going to get a Tom Cruise cake, it was someone who was delivering the cake, and off they went. And, uh, you know, if you're going to deliver a Tom Cruise cake, put a bit of oomph into it, a bit of gusto, all right? At least leap onto my balcony, barrel through my window, you know, explode at the flat next door, and then climb through the rubble, and then hand me the cake, you know? Perhaps, I mean, you know, as you, as the, his lawyer, I can see a couple of problems with that. With I can that see problems with that, client. but you know, if you you know present a cake to me using the severed arms of my neighbors, that's the sort of thing that I'm I'm thinking right. a real a real showstopper. Like Paul Hollywood's always banging on about showstoppers, right? And this needs to be a showstopper, in my opinion. Yeah. I had a Paul Hollywood rustic role this week. Just throwing that out there while you mentioned him. Does that mean you had what, sex why? with Paul Hollywood? Not a euphemism. <laughs> Sounds like you had sex with Paul Hollywood this week. Let's move on. Okay. Uh, but, but going back to the cake, I would say the interesting thing about this cake is I'm right in saying it's a coconut cake, isn't it? No. It's not. No. Because in previous years, he has issued a coconut cake. And that's quite a controversial choice of cake because most people, when they break open a box of, I can't remember, it's celebrations, isn't it? They'll leave the bounties behind because nobody Those likes coconut. motherfuckers. But, but, no. ah, but it was a great cake. It I was mean, a great so cake. So Terry got... Terry got the the Tom Cruise cake one yeah. year, and it, it was, and she she shared it. That was a spectacular. It was like white chocolate yeah. and lemon and coconut. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like overwhelming, just coconut. Oh, it was a spectacular well, cake. I it love it. Good. I miss Alex, it. I'll, I'll I'll get Helen to explain what sort of cake it is because I'm going to describe the cake to you, Helen, and you tell me the name of the cake or give me mine now, and I'll eat it. And you I'll won't you. know. You won't know. Yeah, what the cake. Right. Helen will know because she does the baking. She does. She, she does the baking with the what's it. I do the eating. She doesn't. She doesn't bake with what's it's. By the way. <laughs> That would be a terrible, terrible cake. Um, could you yeah, bake a Watson's quavers? Absolutely, uh, maybe. Yes. Okay. So, Helen, it is, yes, it is. Okay, there's coconut on the cake. I will grant you that. Mm-hmm. But the cake itself is a cake that will actually last for some time. And it is a, uh, it's a cake, Helen, you'll know the, you'll know the phrase. Um, it's it's a round cake, Helen. Uh, my my wife father mm-hmm. tells me that it'll actually last for a long time. It's It's got, it's got a hole in the middle. What would, What sort of cake would you say that is? Is is it a stolen? No, I think he paid for it with his own money. <sighs> wow! I should have said bunt. You I know should. that now. He is a massive bunt. A bunt. <laughs> <laughs> and why I did that music instead of the, the Mission Impossible music, I have no idea. Um, uh, but yes, I got the Tom Cruise cake, and I'm very, very excited about That's that. That's cool. I met That's Dougie cool. at the weekend with a little drinking game. Did uh, he we, give you a cake? Uh, Dougie did not give me a cake. I didn't get a Dougie hug, but we actually met him. We went, we went kind of backstage, and we met Dougie and all the squirrels, and it was, it was absolutely incredible. It was glorious. 
Absolutely glorious. Um, and yes, we've been in watching a lot of Muppet Babies this week. The new Muppet mm. Babies, the CG Muppet Babies. The new Babies. one isn't as good. It's I not like as good. it. I'm sorry. I like it. No, Although, I won't accept it. It's, it's actually quite funny. Quite quite inventive. The songs are really, really good. Um, unfortunately, there's no Merchant Muppet Babies merchandise whatsoever. So Santa has been unable to bring Little Drinky Game anything Muppet Babies related this Christmas. So um, I'm, I'm afraid I'm putting Santa on notice. I'm going to fire your fucking ass if you don't get something to me next year. So wow, there you go. Wow, somebody's on the naughty list suddenly. Yeah, I don't give a shit. <clears throat> well, for I'll, a while, I'll now. punch Santa in a stupid fucking face. <laughs> anyway, how are you both? You good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. So ready for Christmas, and and in particular the Christmas break, and for this to be over. I mean, I mean, <laughs> this podcast. Uh, hey, come yes. on now. Come on. Come on. <laughs> Helen has uh, done this podcast out of the goodness of her heart. What what would you be doing right now if you weren't doing this? I my tradition when I get home for Christmas is to pick a Terry Pratchett book at random and read it. So I'm I'm in the middle of Masquerade, and quite frankly, that's what I would be doing probably. Or I would be out for a run because it is a nice day. I am missing actual genuine sunshine. Obviously, it's freezing. That's not the point. It's not cloudy and and raining. So yeah, there you go. That's the plan. That's the plan. All right, there you go. Listen, before we get into the listener questions, the last one, uh, or maybe ones of the year, I should point out that it is now December 22nd, uh, three days to go until Christmas. If you are looking for a great Christmas gift this year, folks, either for yourself or for a loved or, let's be honest, hated one, and you don't have access to a cake made with bits of real Tom Cruise, not many of us do, that's totally fine, then can I suggest a good gift for you this year? The gift of the Empire Podcast. And by that I mean our next live show, which is episode 550. We do these big landmark episodes every year, and this year we're going into our 11th year, can you believe it, of the Empire Podcast, and uh, episode 550. And it's going to be a big jamboree at King's Place in London, our spiritual home, and it's going to be on Thursday. It's going to be a school night this year. It's not going to be a weekend one. It's going to be on Thursday, February 2nd, and tickets are on sale. Tickets have just gone on sale at kingsplace.co.uk. Um, we're under the comedy section, which feels somewhat of a mislabeling, but there you go. And uh, go Especially and check that, that out. Stolen gag was anything to go by. Listen, I'm going to be lining up belter after belter after banger after banger on the night. It's going to be incredible. We're going to be there. Helen's going to be there. James is going to be there. There may be a big old star name guest or even two, depending on who's available, who I can I can, I can <laughs> capture uh, on the night. Uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. So tickets are on sale right now. We would love to see you there. And as ever with these live shows, uh, we're hoping to have a streaming option available, but we would put that on sale after we sell out in the room or get close to selling out um, because we obviously know that not everyone can attend a show in London. And if you're not London-based, you could always uh, think about a subscription to our spoiler specials uh, for someone as a, as a Christmas gift for yourself, for others, whoever, uh, or uh, join the Empire VIP Club. We've had a couple of banging events recently with Ryan Johnson and James Cameron coming along to talk us through their recent films. So, you know, that is another great option mm -hmm. if you're stuck for gifts. Or, while I'm here, Women versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Hollywood uh, in film, is on sale in all good and evil bookshops. So, there you go. It's, it's on my Christmas list, Helen. <laughs> to read, read. You've got one, James. You've had one for a year and a half. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing, Jimbo. People keep sending me, Chris, um, what, what, please won't you fuck off. But also, they say, 
would you ever write a book? And I go, no, it's far too much work uh, and I don't have the time. But then we come to the podcast this time of year and I've got nothing to plug. I've got nothing to plug. You can plug the Pilot TV podcast. I can plug the Pilot TV podcast. I have nothing to plug. I am literally half a human right now. Oh, the horror. More machine now than man. (laughs) Twisted and bunt-like. Twisted and bunt-like. Yes, indeed. All right. So if you want to get those things, Empire Podcast 550th live show. Well, actually, that's not true. It's not our 550th live show, but a 550th (laughs) show live. It feels like it. And... uh, uh, and then you can uh, you can do that. You can subscribe to the Empire VIP Club as well. All right, listen. Let's have a question or two. Let's sure. have a Christmassy question, shall we? Because uh, right, he goes to Twitter. Uh, here's one from Nick Riot. We're going to try and keep them Christmassy related this week. If Kevin McAllister had the entirety of the Nakatomi Plaza building to lay traps in, would John McLean survive? I'm going to overlook the spelling of McLean and. Uh, and and um, and ask this question to yes, you anyway because John McClane has a machine gun ho 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 he'd kill the little shit in five minutes I don't know if he would though what with being a good guy and stuff you know they tend to frown upon killing small children with machine guns I think Kevin McAllister's a borderline sociopath and probably I don't even think it's borderline what's coming to him. it's not borderline yeah. he's, he's absolutely okay, but- he's, he's now a high ranking official <laughs> in the GOP there's no question about it. Okay, but, and I'm just, you know, saying, I, I feel like it is usual for police officers not to shoot 11-year-olds. Oh. And, and I feel like, again, even if he is a borderline psychopath or over the borderline and all the way into um, the political party that Chris mentioned, I again, it's not something that police officers are encouraged to do. It is frowned upon, you know. I just feel like yep. that's a bit far. Yes, but Helen, I, I think, think he it, has to either he has to be able to capture Kevin alive. That's what we have to have the stakes here to skin him. Yes, I understand. Like the Predator, that makes absolute perfect sense. <laughs> uh, I think anyone oh who's seen either of the Home Alone films would be a hundred percent on board um, with the murder of Kevin McAllister. No, there aren't. I refuse to believe it. <laughs> Absolutely not. There are so many more. There's so, so many, many more, more. including yeah. the most recent one with no. last year's Home Sweet Home Alone, which um, I actually prefer to both the first two Home Alone movies. Hard pass on all of you. But uh, I think we need to interrogate this scenario even further. So, mm-hmm. okay. So we're assuming that this is Die Hard playing out, but with Kevin McAllister instead of Hans Gruber. And the terrorists. Right? He's all of them. But he's, this is what I'm saying. Like, he's Kevin McAllister has taken, this is the only way this works. Yeah. Kevin McAllister has taken over the Nakatomi Plaza and he's doing exactly everything that Hans Gruber did in that movie. You know, he's, he's taking people hostage, he's, he's killing Ellis, he's killing Joseph Takagi, Takagi. Mm. Uh, and Father of Five, and he's, you know, he's doing all this stuff. Therefore, he's a badden. So I think it's absolutely okay for John McClane to drop him off the side of a building. It, again, he's twelve. the The age of criminal responsibility. He's ain't he's there aging yet. fast. Is Kevin McAllister? How old well, is okay, he? Well, okay, whatever age he is. Isn't he eight? I, I don't have remember. No idea. He's definitely under the age of criminal responsibility. Definitely, even then in America, which has a very buildings. patchy record on this, he shouldn't be taking over buildings. There, we can agree. However, I'm not convinced that that's what the question asker meant. <laughs> are, are we sure that he's actually? I think it's like he's in Nakatomi Plaza. He set up a bunch of traps. Mm-hmm. Can John McClane get through the traps in one piece? Now that, I think we can all agree the answer is yes. But I don't think, I mean, because he fully drops a, a hot iron on somebody's face. So John would have to mm-hmm. duck quite fast. We need to, to talk about that. Kevin McAllister. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he uh, like no no argument. Like those those robbers are dead several times over. There's no question. Like I literally spoke to a doctor about this once and got him to talk me through the film. And at what point they die? <laughs> Actually, before they get into the house, slipping on the steps is one of the most likely scenarios. Like they're super dead. Um, but it's <laughs> balmy weather in LA. You know that is. That he doesn't have that to work with. He doesn't have well. He does have paint pots. He doesn't probably have an iron handy in Nakatomi Plaza. He does, however, have a bunch of welding equipment and probably a nail gun in that unfinished floor yeah, upstairs. Does, yeah, so that's yeah. a bit of a worry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all I'm saying is uh, McLean wins. Kevin McAllister is going down. Uh, he's going to. He's going for a stretch in juvie. That. Uh, uh, where yeah. he uh, that I'm. I'm totally on board with. I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah. Um, Home Alone three set in the big house. Uh, right. <laughs> Here's a question. Here's a good one. This one's not to imply that the other one wasn't good, but this is from someone whose name I can't see. Hang on, let me see if I can see it. Uh, Tilly Alcock on Twitter. We always refer to our Christmas turkey as Martin after <laughs> the get back in the box Martin line at the beginning of Muppet Christmas Carol. Have you got a Christmas film tradition or saying that has made it to your Christmases in real life? I, I must admit, I, I have consistently said Merry New Year to people in a trading places style since seeing that film pretty much exclusively so that yeah. that i mean rightly or wrongly that has become a thing for me and yeah. then of course the whole of love actually like chris i was outside your house with some cars last night playing stuff on a stereo so you know i, James, do, I do things like that you to me yeah. are perfect <laughs> thanks chris i went to james's house and stood in his doorstep he wasn't there because he was at my house standing at morning <laughs> my very awkward. he's always been standing on my doorstep Oh boy! How do you know he wasn't actually delivering this message to your your lady wife while you were out? What? <gasps> what? I mean, Science there's Carol precedent Singers. for it in the movie. Says Carol Singers. Fucking, uh, oh God! No, no. Uh, I I whenever we're carving the turkey at Christmas, I always say, "Here's the heart," from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. There's lots of lines I I mangle horribly from. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but yeah, you know, I do quote that film quite a lot this time of year. And Muppet Christmas Carol, it's hard, you know. That's that's a very very Christmassy one. Um, I don't know how much has made it into my Christmas though. I d- yeah, I don't know how many lines from movie. I mean, obviously they all get quoted and they all get watched and talked about. Um, but the the thing we actually quote most consistently is the Father Ted Christmas special. <laughs> And, uh, you know, th- it's been a while since I went to mid- Midnight Mass, but consistently at Midnight Mass, I'd find things like my brother leaning over and going, he gives good mass <laughs> um, in a, a slightly creepy way. And uh, yeah, that gets quoted a lot in my house well, um, this time of year and generally, you know. Here we are now, all the lads. That's, that gets quoted quite a bit. Uh, I have to say, James, have you even seen the Father Ted Christmas special? No, I have only watched, I believe, one episode of Father Ted in my life, and it was the one with the spider baby. The first one? Yeah. Wow. And let me guess. You really do hate joy. <laughs> you didn't like it? No, <laughs> I didn't like it. How did I gobshite get on the podcast? <laughs> what is uh, going on? Uh, no, Father Ted is incredible. Uh, is Arthur Matthews' best work? But isn't it? Isn't it? It's one of these things where I think it depends when you sort of slide into it, or it slides into your life. Like uh, if I'd grown up with it, I think I'd maybe be more, like if I watched Red Dwarf, like the first season of Red Dwarf now, I would probably accept that it's not good. 
Whereas when I watched it then, it was the apotheosis of all things funny. Mm. And so it is now an integral part of what I think of as humour. But a Christmas film tradition, what, what are you watching this, this year, Christmas Eve? What's, what's the film? One of my sisters and I have already seen It's a Wonderful Life, but It's a Wonderful Life will be on TV again. My small nieces and nephews arrive uh, tomorrow, so there will probably be some kind of cartoon as well, because they don't consider live action to be a valid art form. Huh. Um, only only animation is is acceptable to them. So yeah, That's, That is true. I can, I can attest to that, uh, because uh, I introduced Little Drinker Game to the Muppets via the Muppet Show, and then... Then she moved on to Muppet Babies, and then we watched Muppet Christmas Carol, and she didn't. She doesn't like the real Muppets as much as she likes the CG Muppet Babies. Yeah. Although I will Hang say, on. the CG Muppet Babies. Yeah. Are the Muppet in Babies the now new in the new Muppet Babies? Oh no, yeah. no, no. This is no, what no, I'm no. saying. It's okay. It's 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 actually decent. It's actually decent. Um, I I was dead set against it, especially because the theme tune is not as good. It's mm-hmm. the same theme tune as the 1980s Muppet Babies, but but kind of. I don't know, Big in band. a very modern production style. <laughs> it's sung by Renee Elise Goldsbury, which, oh, yeah, it does it, which get is interesting. So it gets points for that. And, you know, it's relatively speaking the same lyrics and the same tune, but it's a bit like whenever they, they up, updated the snooker theme and they made it all modern and dancey and it just doesn't quite work. But the show itself is quite funny and sweet. Uh, but she loves the Muppet Babies, not so hot about the, the real Muppets. Uh, but there is a really fun, and it only ran for one season because Muppet Babies is now no longer uh, running on, on Disney+. Plus. But if you seek out Muppet Babies, play date they did a series of 12 shorts where they actually made the Muppet Babies as puppets and they interact with kids real kids in the Sesame Street style they're three minutes long you can watch all 12 in 36 minutes and they're so sweet and they're so fun just watch and it just makes you go why can't we have a Muppet Babies show with these Muppet Babies puppets because they're so they're so good Um, but yes all of that is obviously uh, <laughs> because my life changed massively this year and, you know, little drinking game and all that. And you know, it's her first Christmas with us and we're really, really excited about it. And, uh, you know, I took her to see Muppet Christmas Carol the other day in the cinema and she loved it. And we're not sure what we're going to watch on Christmas Eve because now I'm now I'm now treading that line I never thought I would. I thought, you know, I'll get a kid, don't care if she's four years old, I'm sticking on the Terminator. But it's... It, <laughs> It's not working oh, that out for Christmas me. classic. It's not working out for me in that way. Christmas classic. I can stick Lethal Weapon. She would love Lethal Weapon. Yes, yes she would. Uh, but you know, we have to we have to figure it out. Like she's too young for Gremlins. She's too young for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Live mm-hmm. action stuff. Like Helen said, she doesn't like live action stuff. It's animation all the way. Elf Border. Uh, so I've got to find a good Christmas animated film. Any any suggestions? Well, there's the classic American um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is a stop-motion animation um, that has has its fans. I'm I'm not for, foremost among them. There's the Charlie Brown Christmas, which is cute mm-hmm. but probably too s- slight and mm-hmm. and slow for modern tiny kids. Arthur Christmas yeah, might do yeah, better. People fall over a lot in Arthur Christmas. I like Arthur yeah. Christmas. And Snowy Day. There's a uh, which is a there's a really good version of the uh, the the classic. Kids' book, The Snowy Day, which is on Prime. But yeah, I need to find stuff that's not just simply watching Christmas themed episodes of Paul fucking Patrol because Jesus Christ, help me. Um, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's my Christmas tradition this year. Usually, usually we sit down and we watch something like um, Die Hard. But this week, The Banshees of Ed Sheeran was added to Disney Plus. Uh, so Initial. I still haven't seen it. 
and I'm going to sit down and finally see what all the fuss is about with this Galway girl that he keeps banging on about. Um, oh Colin boy. Farrell plays the Galway girl, I yes, believe. That so is oh very, that very is the plot of the film. Excited mm-hmm. about that. And then, of course, uh, today, as you're hearing this podcast, if you're hearing it today on December 23rd, it's Glass Onion Day on Netflix. Uh, so we're, that might become our Christmas tradition. I mean, we might Christmas Day, we're all going to sit down, we're going to get up, going to see what Santa's brought us. Um, uh, me in particular and then we're going to have Christmas dinner we're going to play with some of Little Drinking Games toys and then we're all going to sit around the, the TV and watch the brand new traditional Salako Hewitt Christmas family film Bardo False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths <laughs> I mean nothing says Christmas quite like that I think <laughs> it really doesn't I mean I mean, I guess Little Drinking Game might like the axolotls in it, but uh, that'll be fun for you. Yep, yep. The Minions cut of Bardo, False Chronicles of a Handful <laughs> of Truths. Uh, anyway, uh, listen, let's move on with the rest of the show because we've got a lot of guests this week uh, to pack in. And quite frankly, we want to pack it in and go and prepare for Christmas. So uh, who do you want first? Do you want the Glass Onion duo of Kate Hudson and Jessica Hennig? Yes. All right. Okay, we'll have them then, shall we? Uh, so yeah. Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, the second in Ryan Johnson's uh, series of Benoit Blanc films is out this week on Netflix. It is an absolute joy of a movie. For my money, it might be slightly better than the first one. I will I will confirm that uh, either way once I've seen it again this weekend. Uh, it's great, and it's got an incredible ensemble cast, as you might expect. Obviously, at the center of it is Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, but we also have the likes of Janelle Monet, Edward Norton, Leslie Odom Jr., Catherine Hahn, Dave Bautista. And as a fading pop star and her beleaguered assistant, we have Kate Hudson and Jessica Hennick. And whenever they came into London a few weeks ago now... Uh, to talk about the film I jumped at the chance to have a, a good old sit down and natter about them now obviously this is a sort of movie you can't really talk about the movie with because of spoilers and whatnot. so we had a bit of a bit more of a wide ranging and freewheeling conversation uh, they were both an absolute delight Jessica Hennick turns out Helen knows Bambridge pretty well hey she has not who would have thought well because of Game of Thrones so they you know they all know Bambridge pretty well uh, the Game of Thrones cast I remember talking to Sophie Turner once and she was like she knew Bambridge better than I did uh, which which is which is weird but uh, yeah so here we go Jessica Hennick and Kate Hudson talking about breaking into the industry and assistance and being an assistant and what that means to you and there's a fair amount of uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn chat here as well which was an absolute delight hope you guys enjoyed this as much as I did enjoy well, welcome to the Empire Podcast, both of you. Thank How are you, you both? This is the last interview of the day. So are you a bit like, you know, D-Mob happy and you're going to go absolutely nuts in the last interview of the day or are you just tired of people <laughs> asking the same shit over and over again? You know, I feel like it's been really fun because they paired us with different people throughout the day. So like we started the day together with Maddie and then mm-hmm. I did some stuff with Catherine. And then we, so it's kind of like it keeps it, keeps keeps it, it fresh. fresh and fun. Okay. And I like people, uh-huh. so I feel like I could talk forever. Like, sometimes people have to pull me out of the room. <laughs> um, you know. This is the thing, because I hate people, Kate. So this is it, yeah, I hate people. Strange wow. people. profession. Hell is other people. Why have I chosen to be a podcaster? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I mean, for, I mean, your job is to be curious about people. No, no curiosity whatsoever. <laughs> How long have you been doing a podcast? Oh, oh, you're turning the tables. I like mm-hmm. this. Uh, some would say too long. Ten years. Ten oh, years. Wow. Ten so you years. were doing podcasts before podcasts had their... No, see, I thought I missed the boat. 
Because when I did really? the podcast 10 years ago, I thought podcasts were like, had already blown up and it missed their, their, their moment. No, because they and went then, through a, yeah. a wave yeah. in the last 10 years, for sure. Well, the good thing is we've stayed along for 10 years being spectacularly unpopular. So <laughs> we, we, we're not affected by trends no, in any way, shape or form. So Where it's, in it's Ireland all good. are you from? Good ear. Yeah, Very well, I had to do an Irish accent once. So I had to listen wow. to like every Irish accent. But okay. I don't remember. I'm going to say, <laughs> let me guess. Okay. okay. All right. I mean, I'm going to go closer to Dublin. Okay, fine. Uh, maybe I'll go to, maybe I'll go a little south of Dublin. No, you go north, north. Ah, you know You go north, you go ah. north, up into Northern Ireland. That's where I, I'm from a Northern, place called Northern. Banbridge, which is between, betwixt Dublin and Belfast. So, right. yeah. I thought you got okay. studio Banbridge. I was wrong, yeah. really wrong. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I filmed at the studio, the Bambridge studio. My son did you? Nana is. Of course you did. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you probably know. You probably been, but you've been to Bambridge more recently than I've been to Bambridge. So you can tell me what's happening. Well, what's shooting up there now? I don't. I don't know. I guess the new one. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and they've 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 opened up a huge Game of Thrones museum and see that's the funny thing is when we were there, it was nice filming up there because it felt like no one. No one there cared. Like, we would walk down to the shops in our full costume. No one would take a photo. No one knew what Game of Thrones was. <laughs> it felt like all of the fans were in America, and we were just in isolation over there. So it's, I'm surprised they've opened, opened a museum, because I'm surprised there's interest. Which season oh, were interest, you in? Yeah. Five till seven. Yeah, five till seven. Five, five till seven. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. When did you start watching? Oh, right away. <laughs> I was, I mean, I'm like, I, I loved Game of Thrones. I just don't, I mean, there's so much, there's so much of it. I'd have to go back and rewatch so it to be like, you know, really. Yeah. But yeah. I'm watching the new one. Are you watching the new one? See, I want to watch the new one because my friend John is in it. And I really want to support. I've heard it's great, but I can already tell it's in for the long run. Yeah. And I just don't know if I can go on that journey again. You're not a, you're not a binger? Do you, oh. do you commit to TV shows that have long spans? I do, but then I usually let them sort of, uh, gather a crew I let, I let them accrue yeah, yeah. well that's the thing you let them finish and then you know whether they're any good I'm or not really because if you go into a TV show and then it dives off a cliff then you're then you just waste wasted your time your investment yeah precisely yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to waste the investment oh, really? just for the yeah I just you know because I'm in the industry it's like mm-hmm. I'd like to see it how they wasted it you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like education yeah that's right but so okay cautionary so watch, tales when you watch other films are you able to turn that off or, or other TV shows, are you able to turn that off? Or are you always analyzing it? Is there always some part of you going, hmm, sometimes the I want some, not. Yes, well, sometimes it's supporting me. I mean, there are certain <laughs> things that I just don't watch. Like, mm. there's certain shows also that are like really popular. I won't even say it because it'll be too much of a headline. But there are certain, like, it'll be like, you know, <laughs> the one thing that comes out of this is that I don't like a show that everyone loves. You know? <laughs> but there's certain shows I'm like, I just don't get it. And I don't mm. really want to, like, that that I wouldn't. Yeah, there are a couple shows which I. So you can you can even, the shows out. No no one listens to this. Yeah, podcast. You just, <laughs> just say what the shows are. You will not get it out of me. Well, I think there's also a big difference in uh, British sitcoms versus American sitcoms. There are many American sitcoms where I go, huh, okay, I I wouldn't sustain eight, nine, ten seasons of watching this. I don't understand. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the British model is six episodes and six episodes a year if you're lucky and you're done. <laughs> Did you watch? And that's it. Staff Let's Flats. No, but I've seen a couple oh. of episodes. But I have, uh, that's it? that's one I need Staff to get into. Staff Let's Flats is this very strange British sitcom about a Greek real estate 
agent. Oh, and it's oh, I so love it. funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> it kills me. Have you seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? If we're going, if we're no, recommending British no, sitcoms to each other, no. is this new? Six episodes. No, no, it's about fifteen years old now. Oh, okay. Uh, Richard Iwadi, Matt Berry. Love Matt Richard. Holness, you know, just Alice Lowe, this incredible hotbed of talent. It's a spoof of Stephen King. It's a spoof of 80s, terrible 80s sci-fi and oh. horror. It's amazing. It sounds like what, honestly, the British do best. It's extraordinary. Is in right there. I mean, I feel like you guys kind of like, you know, really like comedy for me that start like is to, for because I actually think you Brits are the funniest, personally. Like, the sense of humor for me is just... Thank you very much. Thank you. It's yeah, true. I'll, I'll take like, it. I'll take it. There's yeah. something... I mean, <laughs> it, it, I mean, deeply funny. And I think it comes... I When I lived here, I realized when it got, like, dark at 2.30, why you're all so funny. <laughs> I'm like, oh, now I get it. Oh, I understand the cynicism. I yep. understand the darkness. I understand why you have to find that funny. And yep. the funny is so biting yeah. and so smart and so <laughs> can be so dark. And I just love it. There you go. It's my favorite. Sliding scale as it gets darker, we That's get right. darker yeah. as well. And yeah, it gets, yeah. And then it gets funnier. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Meets in the middle. The perfect, the yes. perfect. Perfect meeting right. place. Well, listen, you know, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I love this film as well. And there's right. part of me, there's a little part of me that is tempted to try and get through an entire 15 minute interview without even talking about the film because it's, that's, <laughs> no, it's tempting, that's right? very perverse and a very British thing to do, obviously. But, so but I love this movie. So we should oh, talk great. about, let me okay. just see what it's called, Glass, on, Glass Onion. <laughs> I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, and you, you enjoyed guys. enjoyed it. Are you recreating this this chemistry? Was this you know the 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 birdie and and Peg chemistry? This is on set? Our, our our relationship is different from Peg and Birdie for sure. Yeah, but I, I it was easy. I mean, we yeah. didn't, it was never. I mean, our first our first uh, rehearsal felt instantly funny. Yeah, it yeah, was Ryan instantly. Was you know, I I you know, we we were both very professional mm-hmm. as as it goes. And then you get more comfortable and then you kind of, you know, sit in the character and you live in it for a bit. And and then it becomes kind of like second nature Mm -hmm. after the first month, you know. But I mean, our dynamic is so important to to both of our characters. I mean, it's just like we are so codependent. Yeah. And um, and I'm just looking for her validation. And then, you know, I. I'm mothering her at times and mm, totally. you know we're we, there's a there's a you know closeness to us that it's like can't live with can't w- live without i mean yeah. i can't i can't live without yeah yeah um i think peg too i think she would she's actually been doing this so long she doesn't know what life is like outside of of birdie land anymore yeah. Yeah, she's desperate to hold on to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which yeah. which is yeah, which is interesting. And, and obviously this whole relationship, you know, uh having an assistant is something that pretty much everybody does in the in the movie industry. Uh I have three assistants outside. <laughs> by the way. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah they you do? Me. No, I wish I wish. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, it's just me. It's just me. Look at the bags on my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> this is a one man operation. But uh no, I, I, what was the point? in your careers when you got first got the system yeah I'm, I'm fascinated by that sort of stuff you know if I mean I mean the thing is is that when you're working on movies actually you've got like PAs which are all of our assistants really mm-hmm. because you can't get things when you need things because you're preoccupied making move, making the movie and 
you know, sometimes you're either in like a certain costume, can't do something, you can't, mm. you know. So assistance happen, I think, um, immediately. Kind of immediately when you're on a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had it. I mean, my I, you know, you get an assistant when you need an assistant, you know. So <laughs> I, I, so that you know, it just depends on. And I'm actually funny because I, I don't want. I like. I love my team. Yeah. Um. But I never want them around, you know, and not in a bad way. I'm always like, I got it. I can do it. I can do it. And that really, when it turned into my life, when I was like, I, I really can't do this alone anymore, was yeah. when, you know, it just got really busy. And I, yeah. I'd say for me, that was early. You know, I, I started to get really busy around 1920. Wow. Yeah. So my first assistant was, was right during Almost Famous. And then. Yeah. Was your it was just it just was like a whirlwind, and all of a sudden I was like, "Who's gonna get my dry cleaning?" And that's when I got an assistant. Was your assistant older than you or younger than you? Because that's a very young age. So. She was old, older. My first was assistant. That weird? Uh, no, 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 no. I don't know why. I, in my head, I always think, "Oh, a certain assistant is younger than you." Yeah, the um, people who are looking to get in the industry maybe want yeah, to be producers. Like, yeah. and a lot of assistants. Like a lot of assistants I know yeah. are usually trying to angle towards becoming a producer. I yeah. look. I grew up with two very. I mean, I grew up with my parents having, except my Kurt. Kurt's never had anybody, and it was like <laughs> my mother, and my mom was like, oh. I. She's Basically, like, me. Yeah. my my team works for Pa. You know, uh, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I grew up with a very working mother who had, you know, my Auntie D was my mother's assistant for, you know, 30 years. and Wow. But, would, but when you were 19 and 20, would you find it weird to ask your assistant? To do something? To do something. Uh, very good question. Because, like, would that's I a really young weird? age to be a boss. Like, could, how we, we, was it a, I imagine there was a learning curve of how do I become a I boss? I just felt, I always just felt bad. I, I still feel that way. It's like, because I know, you know, asking someone to get you something always feels a little bit apologetic. Like, know, can know, you get me a tea? Feels like, you know, it takes you a second to realize, like, no, it's okay, you know, because I really would like that and I can't. I'm preoccupied. And yeah. I don't know. The whole thing of assisting and never gets normal. It, I don't think it does. I don't yeah. think it ever gets normal. Yeah. And then it gets actually more challenging because then the, the kinds of assistants that you grow into are more executive assistants and they hold more, they hold a position that actually mm-hmm. has a, like, you know, that you need people who, you know, it's not a runner job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. You're yeah. talking, I have the four businesses. <laughs> I'm talking, I'm a, I'm a production I'm company. Not. I'm like, I have so many, I have so many people that help the, the, the you know, it's a machine and yeah. one is just as important as the other i mean you know a great runner in your life can is going to end up running your business at some point and that i think is the great thing about assistance is that you you know that's why our parents threw us into assisting people on movies they were like you're not coming <laughs> on a movie set unless you're assisting somebody wow so we i was like on wardrobe i was in wow. makeup i was in my favorite was the camera department that's awesome that's yeah, amazing, amazing. Yeah, because uh, yeah, I, I remember I I, I uh, met Kurt a few years ago. We 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 reunited him with John Carpenter. Oh, fun! 
And it was it was an amazing day. And uh, he just turned up. No assistant, no entourage, no nothing. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. No, just not rocked Kurt. up. Yeah. 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 Kurt's like old school. He's got his agent and he's like, you'll do everything. And they're like, that's not how we do things anymore. He's like, too bad. And he's like, too bad. <laughs> too bad. <laughs> yeah. He's a one man. He's a one man show. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, what about you? When the first assistant, um, was that weird? Did it weird you out? Well, I actually was a, a PA. I was a set okay. PA. Um, when I first moved to LA when I was 17, tried to become an actor, couldn't become an actor. Uh, ended up working a bunch of different crew jobs and one of them was PA. Uh, but it was more of a, it was, I was the lowest level. Like it was, you know, topping up the crafty table and moving the chairs out for lunch. <laughs> I was not given any sort of uh, sense of responsibility or duties to any person of importance uh, on the film. But I have had two assistants at this stage, only on films. Uh, actually, it was on the Grey Man. Netflix gave me yeah. an assistant. And I realized, because I was one of those people who said, never, never, never. And then I realized how overwhelmed I was getting. Uh, and it, and especially during then, it was a COVID. Yeah. They wouldn't let me go and, they wouldn't let me go to the grocery shop. So I had you can't to leave your flat. I, I wasn't uh, yeah. allowed to yeah. be in in public. So I would send her a list and she would go get it. And yeah, it was very helpful. Yeah, you gotta be wary of the people who are like, you know, there's like that ex you know, that are very, very reliant on the the your this their assistants to like do things for them that they can very easily do themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, know, you see you see that a lot. Yeah, you must have seen a few few birdies in your time. I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of them. I've seen a lot. Less birdies. Well, actually, no, I've definitely met some birdies. I've met actors who are actually incapable. Like, no, they weird. couldn't do it themselves because they're just a mess of, they're so fragile, a mess of emotions and delicate and just kind of all over the place. And everybody also has a different thing. Like, I think, like... I grew up with Kurt. I mean, so yeah. my, tr like, the idea, like, on sets, you know, when you walk, there's certain people on trailers are just filled with people. Yeah. The only thing you're really going to see my trailer filled with is, is my kids. You know, that's, like, <laughs> here and there, you know. But, like, that that trailer that's, like, so many people, I'm like, oh, that would, the, the introvert in me, mm -hmm. which, surprisingly, I have that side to me. Yeah. Is just, no. I can't have another. I'm like, I need the. Space. Yeah. I, yeah. But it is funny being on those films where people make compounds out of their trailers where they'll get trailers and mm -hmm. they'll make a box. So mm -hmm. all the trailers face in and then they like put down AstroTurf and it's like the assistant A is in this trailer, assistant B is in this trailer, their team's in that trailer. That it's it's kind of interesting. The the but, village that it becomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel Absolutely. like that part of this relationship is something that we are I mean, based on your question very clearly familiar with. <laughs> I don't even remember what question was anymore. I go through this because, you know, it did, assistants sound fabulous, right? But there's this weird thing that we have collectively that, like, people are just supposed to do everything alone. Like a mother, like, oh, a mother's just supposed to, you're supposed to do it alone. If you have a, a anyone who helps you or a babysitter or a nanny, like, huh? It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> there's no woman on this planet who can do everything alone yeah. we need to like enlist each other to help each other and i think the best kind of things is especially if you can you know have the means to have like a team of people is to is to is to do what we're supposed to do as a tribe of women which is we all help each other mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. what i mean 
Like, I, you know, there's no world in which anyone shouldn't be, be picking up the trash. This includes myself and that tribe. We all take out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm yeah, using that yeah. as an analogy, but, you know. It which works. is not who Birdie is. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. Birdie, Birdie calls it a trash. That's right. Yeah. It's just trash everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, guys, I've got to let you go in a second. But, but wow. I you know. you that was a tangent. And we just went, he wanted oh, the tangent. He got it. You got it. Imagine if I'd been curious about people, how long we could have talked for. Oh, my God. <laughs> if I'd had the slightest curiosity <laughs> in the human condition, how long could we have talked for? How is John Carpenter? Isn't he the best? Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 That's it, so cool. That He's was my favorite. I love him. Was he was my first audition. Really? Yeah. I went in. I auditioned for Escape from L.A. And then I and then I I was like no yeah, I mean it was so it was really it was my second audition actually but it was so great for me to do that because they couldn't find the girl and Kurt looked at me one day at, at breakfast I was going to school and he's like I want you to come audition for this I was like what <laughs> he's like no you should you should you're you should come audition and I was like okay and then I went and auditioned and just yeah it was awesome he's the best. Mm. I was like, "Is John Carpenter such a legend?" You know. But this, if you know, when when the role doesn't come your way, does that not cause friction <laughs> with me and my dad? Yeah. Well, it it, it did actually, <laughs> okay. and, and I think the, it was more actually the conversation of like, is the first role, which I've talked about before, but yeah. is the first role that I'd want to do. I, I just, I just did. I wanted to have my own. I didn't want to be associated with my. I want now to be so very associated with my father. I'd love to work with Kurt. We did. Deep Water Horizon mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, it was sort of like, is this the right thing? You know, yeah, maybe course. I should be going to high school. I was 16. I wasn't really ready. And and so collectively as a family, we decided that wasn't the best thing for me mm-hmm. at the time. Wow. But yeah, but worked out nicely. But seriously, John was so fun. That one thing, he's just yeah. so cool. He's he's so dry. He's so dry. But I, I my memory of that day, I have a picture on my phone. Uh, it, it, was, it was literally just me, the photographer, uh, John and Kurt. Oh. And I have, a, I have a picture on my phone, which I think really sums up their dynamic, which is John looking slightly world weary, but with this wonderfully dry sense of humor, just sitting in the chair, sighing, while Kurt is just <laughs> roaring with laughter. He's oh, just, you know, oh, and so it, I could just hear oh. that laugh in my head. It's, oh. It was But, one you of the know, when days. you look at their career together, you know, they, I mean, you know, John Carpenter, I mean, not to, I mean, this is a movie thing, so it's kind of fun, but John mm-hmm. Carpenter was really responsible for Kurt going from a Disney star oh, yeah. to, yeah. A, you know, being a viable actor that people were looking at because he directed Kurt as Elvis. He did, yeah. And they did, a, they did a TV movie of Elvis. And if you haven't seen Kurt play Elvis, it's so great. And okay. the movie's great. Mm-hmm. And it's where actually... Kurt met his first wife who's had my, you know, they had my brother. So it's kind of cute and that part. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, then the thing and then you yeah. have big trouble. I mean, forget yeah. it. It goes on. Oh, yeah. Escape, Escape from New York. Come on. Oh, yeah. It's Amazing. the coolest. It's the coolest. It is yeah. the coolest. Uh, I could talk to you guys about that all day long, but I'm being wrapped up. Uh, Kate, Jessica, oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Nice. Thank you so much. So nice Thank to you. talk to you. Thank you indeed. And, uh, Hello to Bambridge. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Bye, Bambridge. Bye. Okay, so that was Kate Hudson and Jessica Hennick, and now it's time to dig deep into this week's movie news, of which, because it's Christmas and Hollywood has knocked off for the week, uh, for the next couple of weeks, actually, there's not a lot 
going around. There is box office news, of course, which is, I think a lot of people have been uh, watching Avatar The Way of Water and its box office reception with great interest and, you know, wondering whether it would follow in the footsteps of the first movie and perhaps make a run at being the biggest film of all time again. Could it make the same impact as the first movie did? Or would, as we've been told repeatedly by people who seem to have some sort of vested interest in hating on Avatar over the last few weeks and months, would it fall flat on its face and that there was no appetite for these movies? And the truth is somewhere in between, but with the, I I would say, skewing more towards the first one, uh, because Mm. it came out in the, uh, basically around the world at the weekend, and it made, it had an opening weekend at the global box office of around $460 million. It is predicted by box office prognosticators, who like to prognosticate for a living, that it will hit the billion dollar mark within about around about Christmas Day so that's about 10 days after release or so which is obviously incredible especially in a post-pandemic world where the billion dollar uh, mark is very rarefied air only two Mm. films have hit that in the post-COVID world Spider-Man No Way Home and Top Gun Maverick otherwise no film has even come close Black Panther Wakanda Forever is currently on just over half of what the first movie made so it shows that there is still an appetite for this for for Avatar and going back to the the world of Pandora and the world that James Cameron created but does it also show that maybe it's not going to do quite as well as the first movie? I mean I I never thought it would I know I know Cameron was very sort of bold about saying that anything less than the first film it doesn't make more than the first film it will be a failure I think was more or less what he said which seemed like a big thing to say because there were a lot of factors at play for why Avatar made that much money it was repeat visits it was the you know the rejuvenation of the 3d format there were so many reasons why it became a cultural event and why people went back and saw it multiple times and i think this film i mean i've seen avatar the way of water a couple of times myself like i'm sure there will be an amount of repeat visit here uh, and i'm sure that contributes to why it's it's made so much money so quickly but i i don't see it like racing towards three billion maybe i'm wrong but i really don't Mm. think it will yeah, the three seems like a stretch, but Cameron movies have always had legs. Like they Titanic have. didn't open huge. Avatar opened big, but not like crazy big. Both of them just stayed in cinemas for ages mm. based on word of mouth. And the word of mouth is, I think its cinema score is pretty strong. It's not like A plus, but I think it was an A, right? So yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's it's you know, it's it's still got some legs, it's still got some time to run. I, I agree with you, I don't think it's gonna outgross the first film. Um but it will pick up a fair percentage of that pop, uh, of that box office, I think. What Cameron said was that at one point that it would need to be the third or fourth biggest film of all time for it to even break even. <laughs> uh, now, he's a guy who I think is plugged into what that is, but he never actually said the words $2 billion. But that's, that's the territory we're talking about. Uh, you know, that's, that's Force Awakens territory, that's, that's you know, um, that's Infinity War territory, that's, you know, that's where we are. I don't know if it's going to get there, but you know, we've said this how many times we've said this in the podcast. Yeah. You know, this you write off James Cameron at your peril. You do. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. If like if we got a report many, many years from now, hopefully, that James Cameron had passed away, I would go, mm, not so fast. Has <laughs> he though? Yeah. <laughs> write James Cameron back. off at your peril. And then five minutes later, James Cameron has miraculously come back to life. Uh, <laughs> it would be one of those situations. So I don't know. It's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. As people have said. The next big film on the schedules is in February, yeah. uh, and the Christmas uh, box office in the states is is very interesting. It's very very long. Christmas, you know, cinemas are open on Christmas Day, so Christmas box office is actually pretty huge. And 
there's not much of a drop off and you know depreciation in box office terms. So it'll be interesting. I don't mm. see it grossing two point nine billion dollars, uh, but will it get to two billion? I'm not ruling it out. No, I would. I wouldn't. I. Would, I definitely wouldn't rule it out. And I do think it is more than just going to see a film. There is an element of you know. There's a big element of event. In the same way there was with Top Gun Maverick, but but more so. So I've seen this twice. I've seen it once in the cinema in the West End, the Odeon West End, the one that uh, Cameron and Lightstorm outfitted for this film. So the perfect way, really, to see it. And I've seen it also at my local cinema as well. They were very different experiences, which is quite interesting. And I guess we'll get onto this uh, when we do the Avatar spoiler special. But I do think with this film, it, it kind of matters a little bit where you see it. I loved the film both times, but I would suggest if you have only seen seen it in 2D or you have only seen it at your local cinema and you are happening you know obviously this is very southeast centric but if you're happening to go into central London at any time over Christmas and you have the time and the funds to do it you know if you can go to the Odeon West End and see it or even just one of those big beautifully tuned like laser projection type cinemas I, I, I would find the time to do it because there is a there is a clarity to seeing it projected on an absolute top-of-the-line screen, which I think matters more for this film than it does for most, partly because of the high frame rate as well, and partly for the 3D. But it really does make quite the difference in terms of the experience of seeing the film. Yeah. Well, in terms of film-seeing experiences, though, can we also talk about the the secret weapon that Avatar has had in this launch week, because it's not just about seeing Avatar in the highest, crispest definition possible. It's also about seeing what I consider the greatest trailer in cinema history. <laughs> I refer, of course, to Oppen... No, I'm kidding. I refer, of course, <laughs> to Barbie's tribute to 2001, A Space Odyssey, Going where, you know, Stanley Kubrick can only have dreamed. Yeah. Um, in fact, I love that the, the Kubrick estate actually uh, sent out a nice tweet about the about the Barbie trailer <laughs> homage to 2001. I, look, I still have no idea what the hell this film is, no. but I'm so freaking hyped for it. Mm -hmm. I, I'm with you. Like when, when when someone said, oh, yeah, Greta Gerwig's doing a Barbie movie, there was that sort of double take, like, I don't know what this film is going to be. And I was fascinated to see what this trailer was. And I swear to God, there is no world in any single sliver of the multiverse, at which point I said, oh, yes, the first Barbie trailer will be a, a Kubrick tribute to 2001. I mean, it's genius. It's, it's genius. Shot by shot as well. Absolutely yeah. shot by shot, mm. meticulously recreated, and all the beautiful little touches as well. So, you know, because I, you know, uh, I, I'm not that au fait with Barbie. But uh, apparently, the the giant Barbie who appears like the monolith the to the little girl is yeah. the very first Barbie. Yeah. That's right. I didn't very know first that. Barbie. So, yeah, they, yeah. They, and that is a perfect recreation. The the hair, the the outfit, everything glasses, is glasses, the sunglasses. Yeah, and it looks absolutely. It's going to be uh, absolutely batshit insane. I love that it's opening on the same day as Oppenheimer, uh, <laughs> a film from which it could not be further removed. The trailer for which came out this week, and um, it basically looks like we're going to get two and a half hours of Killian Murphy doing sad eyes. Uh, <laughs> So I'm, and then a big old explosion and a big old explosion. So I'm I'm there for for that. I mean, dot, 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 I'm, I'm sure, like you know, again, it's he's a filmmaker who who always makes interesting films, and he's got an incredible cast for that as well. If you're not in Barbie, I think the law is you have to be an Oppenheimer. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so I'm sure it'll be good. But yes, it, it's it's perhaps less internet breaking than <laughs> than we expected. Yeah, yeah, the Barbie trailer really just it it set things alight, didn't it? Um, yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued indeed. When is that? July? It's sometime in July. So that'll be that'll July be a good next day. Year, yeah, yeah, July next year. Uh, that'll be that'll be a fun one. But also next year, there was a there was a, a thing that came out this week that wasn't a trailer, 
they released the nine-minute featurette about the first day of filming of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now, most directors that I've spoken to over the years like to have a nice easy day for their opening day. They like to have, they like to ease their actors in very gently, you know, maybe just, maybe not even a dialogue scene, maybe just a scene where an actor's going about a bit of business, maybe opening a door or two, maybe a couple of reaction shots, nice and easy. Not Christopher McQuarrie and not Tom Cruise. For them, their first day was the bike stunt, uh, which we discussed (laughs) and described last year in great detail in a cover story for Empire Magazine where I spoke to them both about it and various other people who were involved with it um, it was described by them then as the most dangerous thing that they have done they have since surpassed that on <laughs> Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2 uh, but this is inc- this is incredible and uh, this is the the detailed featurette about all the training that crews went into to ride a motorbike off a cliff mm. and then parachute off that motorbike before plunging to what would be certain death on rocks several hundred feet below. And uh, it's just an incredible, mind-boggling, uh, mind-blowing featurette. It's, it's great. And that's what he does when he dispenses the cakes. He flies off a cliff, he has a bunch <laughs> of cakes, and he just fires them in your general direction. That's where they land. That's amazing. It does look amazing. I genuinely, that's actually one of the things I do want to do this Christmas. I want to do a Mission Impossible binge from the beginning. And I, just watch I want to jump off a cliff. Yeah, I want to get on a bike <laughs> and I want to just charge off the nearest cliff. Uh, no, I want to, I want to watch, I love these films so much. I'm very, very excited for this. It's, it's so unusual, isn't it, to release this months before the film is actually hitting cinemas. Um, We've got a high two on on the biggest stunt. I think I, I like to think anyway that it's an expression of vast and warranted confidence <laughs> in what they have in the film. You know that they're like. I mean, yes, other people would be worried about you seeing this. Other people would be worried about spoiling something um, big in the film or, or lessening the impact of this huge stunt. We're like, no, nah, this isn't even the biggest thing we've done. This film, never mind all time. Yeah. It's it's crazy confidence and uh, may also be a bit of a thank you for making Top Gun Maverick the biggest film of the year so far, asterisk, but we shall see. Because we don't know, we don't know why he's jumping off the cliff, do we? We don't know, is he being chased? Is he chasing something? Is he chasing someone? It, you know, What's his motivation? What's yeah. his motivation? Someone was saying that, uh, you know, why is there a great big fucking ramp uh, for Ethan to drive off? And uh, someone else has said on Twitter that if you look closely, there's a slight glimpse of a shot in the kind of teaser for the film that that is at the end of the featurette and you can see that he's actually they've just replaced the ramp with a mountain so so he'll be driving off that in the mountain but for what purpose and for why I hope that Macquarie knows (laughs) but (laughs) I think he does I think he does he'll figure it out he always does Uh, All right. anything else that we want to talk about before Uh, we move on I I would like to mention something very very briefly we touched on this last week and I did go into it on yes the pilot TV podcast but obviously The DC stuff, Cavill no longer being Geralt oh. of Rivia, now no longer being Superman. And we, we mentioned in passing that he had Warhammer commitments. But I think we fully delved into the fact that he has been appointed God Emperor of Warhammer 40,000 yes. for Amazon. Yes. Which for him is actually a bigger coup, I would say, than doing coup. Geralt, than doing Superman. So actually, while we thought he would be, you know, sad, sad Henry Cavill, having lost both of his roles, he's actually... Pig in shit, Henry Cavill, because he is now in charge of Warhammer 40,000 and he's That's doing my, films I, and TV shows. My favorite and Henry Cavill action figure, by the way, the, the pig in shit, <laughs> Henry Cavill. 
I just have this great vision of him literally in a room surrounded by tiny figures yeah. and him and a bunch of guys just lying there, kicking their heels up in the air, That's moving these tiny figures around Henry to Cabell, plot out the film. How do you think Henry Cavill surrounded by tiny figures is basically just him talking to a regular journalist, him, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose that's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's massive. He's fucking massive. Walk around him. Walk around him. Yeah. Take days. Um, but yeah, this is this is interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does with this silly little figure man. I I I, I played. You will come in no shock to anyone to hear that I did play Warhammer Forty Thousand as a as a in my misspent youth. I have not for many years, but I'm still ever so slightly obsessed with it. Not that I play it, but just the aesthetic of it, the world of it, the big bulky mm. space marines. There's something about them that's just fucking cool so I play a lot of the the 40,000 video games when they come out very few of them are good but the ones that are are magnificent see I was going to think- but I hadn't played the first 39,999 <laughs> so I thought I wouldn't be able to catch up very good Speaking of DC, though, can we talk about the Rock's post yesterday? Yes. So mm. he was he was pretty bullish about you know Black Adam. Yes, it made a profit, and he had his his slideshow and his his facts and figures to to back up his claims. He was talking about Black Adam too. He was talking about sort of Black Adam versus Superman. And now it seems like, at least in this, what he called this first sort of phase for James Gunn and DC movies, he will not be appearing. So at least for the foreseeable. Short to medium term, Black Adam is a no-go. And it kind of sounded like, I mean, The the Rock wrote a very long Instagram post about this. It kind of sounded like a farewell, didn't it? Mm, It did. It did. It feels to me like uh, James Gunn's first couple of weeks in charge of uh, DC films. He's still got his day job of making Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. But uh, it seems to me in between, like his first couple of weeks in charge of DC films have just been letting a lot of people down like calling them in for meetings and like you know if you're a member of the existing DCEU and you go into a room with James Gunn it ain't going to be good news at this point in time uh, I'm sorry we we appreciate your work thank you for everything you've done there's the door seems yeah. to be the, the particularly general. brutal episode of The Apprentice it, it is uh, he's been he's been going full Alan Sugar and pointing his finger or Harrison Ford and pointing his finger at a lot of people <laughs> Um, and, and, and you know in some cases that's a shame and in other cases you know, as we said last week we, we shall see where this all lands mm-hmm. uh, ultimately but uh, but yes it's it's a shame for, for Johnson isn't it Dwayne Johnson because you know he's been trying to make this movie for 15 years and he finally gets it off the ground he makes all these proclamations about the balance of the power balance yeah. of power in the DC universe oh, the uh, hierarchy of the power in the DC universe changing and of course it does and then he's kind of left <laughs> outside you know with uh, his cap in his hand which is a bit of a shame yeah, sympathies to him, but you know, I'm I'm sure he's, I'm sure he's going to bounce he's back. He's going to he, bounce. He, back. Oh, he'll be fine. He yes. really is. The world's know? smallest violin is not playing for the Rock. <laughs> uh, we we are okay with that one. Uh, anything else? Donald Glover is developing a Spider-Man spin-off about the Hypno Hustler, which is not something I had on my bingo card. How about you guys? No, uh, no. Uh, to be honest, no. <laughs> I no. <laughs> Very much no. But Very uh, much related no. to the Disco Spider. He's uh, Antoine Delsoin. I I don't know how to pronounce it. I've never heard it out loud. He's the leader of a band and he uses hypnosis technology in his instruments in order to rob his audiences. Donald Glover himself, as obviously a huge Spider-Man fan, he was in the in the frame for Miles Morales uh, for a long time. He was, you know, a fan 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 cast for that. Um, and when, when uh, too old. Childish Gambino became adultish Gambino, and, and <laughs> the door for Miles closed. Yeah, quite so. And he's he's um, he's got this up and going with Miles Murphy, son of Eddie, writing the script. No, that's huh. interesting. Okay, so this Isn't is going to be it? the latest Spider-Man free Spider-Man spin-off in Sony Pictures 
universe of Marvel characters or Spumpk. And I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> I know the Spumpk has been officially retired, but uh, it's Christmas. It is a time of miracles. And uh, you ask for miracles, Theo, I give you the S-P-U-M-C. Uh, and uh, honestly, it's, I think it's good that we've been able to have a little bit of Christmassy Spumpk uh, just before we close the book on 2022. Oh boy. Uh, but uh, but there you go. Exciting stuff indeed. Uh, but some sad news. Some sad news uh, this week in that we lost the great British director, Mike Hodges, uh, who passed away at the age of 90. Uh, Mike Hodges had a, one heck of a career. Uh, it began for him as a feature film director, certainly, uh, with Get Carter, which is not a bad way to start any <laughs> yeah. feature film career. But then after that, he had a career that just kind of freewheeled and nothing really um, resembled what had come before. Not everything was as successful as he would have liked it to have been. He was the director of the Griffiths Jones, Mel Smith comedy, Morons from Outer Space, for example. And I know he didn't have a great time on that and he didn't have a great time on the Mickey Rourke film, A Prayer for the Dying. But uh, And he was he was fired from Omen 2, Damien Omen 2, mm-hmm. um, you know, as well. But when he hit, boy, did he hit well. If you're looking for mm-hmm. a, another great Michael Caine film, uh, he reunited with, with Kane on a film called Pulp immediately after Get Carter, which is so different from Get Carter. Mm-hmm. And he made Flash Gordon, for God's sake. He made Croupier, which is the, the film that really turned Clive Owen into a huge star. He made Black Rainbow. He, he made some incredibly eclectic, wonderful films. And I had the great pleasure of talking to him at length for both Flash Gordon and Get Carter recently when Get Carter was being re-released in, in 4K. And, you know, he was just so clear-headed and clear-eyed about his career and you know, where it had gone right and where it had gone wrong. And he was just an absolute pleasure to talk to. And, uh, you know, to get the chance to pick the brains of one of the greatest British directors of all time, which is where he is for me, um, was an absolute joy. And so I was very, very sad this week to, to hear that he had passed away. Uh, if you want to go listen to those, those podcasts, you can. Uh, Flash Gordon's supporter special is behind the paywall. But if you want to go and listen to the the Mike Hodges on Get Carter episode, it's from a few months ago. So check that one out. But yeah, just a, an incredible director. I mean, Get Carter alone is is all time Hall of Famer. Absolutely. I'm, I'm shamefully probably my favorite of his films is Flash Gordon. Um, <laughs> but I just love its campy, cheesy, over the topness and its real sense of style as well. Like it does have, it has a real kind of swagger to it that I really appreciate. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah, what a what a career though! Just so eclectic to go from you know either of those two to croupier, I think is amazing. Yeah, but the thing about Get Carter for me, real quick about it is, I mean, it's just it's his first movie and everything's in place. It's just this wonderful singular vision, and it was made so quickly. The it's based on a book called Jack's Return Home, and that came out in nineteen uh, nineteen seventy. I want to say nineteen seventy seventy one. A year later, Kit Carter was in, in cinemas. So Hodges got the book, adapted the book, wrote the screenplay, and was filming very, very quickly with Michael Caine. And it's one of the coldest, bleakest, harshest crime dramas you will ever see with an iconic performance at the center. It's absolutely incredible. You know, For this to be a first-time filmmaker, it's one of the great first-time films for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very, very sad indeed. Mike Hodges, who passed away this week at the age of 90.
And just very, very quick, usually we give you the big old plug for Empire Magazine around this time of year because it's New Empire Day as we're recording this. The brand new issue of Empire Magazine is on sale right now in all good, evil and virtual news agents uh, right now. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, so we're going to give you the potted version of the big of the big plug, the big sell uh, on the cover. And really the mainstay of the magazine this month is a big old feature dedicated to the greatest actors of all time as, uh, as footed for by you the readers of Empire Magazine and EmpireOnline.com. And uh, on the cover, we have Nicolas Cage, who we shot exclusively at his home in Las Vegas. And uh, there's an interview with uh, Nicolas Cage in there, but we also have some incredible features on the likes of Tilda Swinton and Heath Ledger. And James Mangold wrote for us about Buster Keaton, which is incredible. We have Tim Burton on Jack Nicholson. We have Tilda Swinton as well. It's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, feature section delving deep into the art of acting and the geniuses who uh, bring scripts and characters to life. Uh, without actors, what would films be? Just a bunch of empty sets. There you go. Can't beat them. Can't beat them, is what I say. But there's other great stuff inside the issue as well. We have a feature on The Whale, which is Darren Aronofsky's new film and the big return of Brendan Fraser uh, into the fold. And we spoke to all the people involved with that. We speak to Sarah Pauly and her cast about her new movie, Women Talking. We speak to the director and cast of the upcoming film, Till, which is very exciting as well. We have exclusive looks at The Last of Us and Poker Face and Cocaine Bear and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish and Evil Dead Rise and all sorts of stuff. Uh, In my section, the review section, the best section, the section you should always turn to and then just ditch the rest into the nearest oh bin uh, is... Oh what? What? That's totally fine. Uh, is, a, <laughs> is a deep dive into Better Call Saul, uh, in which I had the good fortune to speak to Bob Odenkirk, Ray Seahorn, Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan and talk about sticking the landing of the best TV show of the year, although James would go to bat for Andor on that front. Yes. Uh, we also mm-hmm. rank the movies of The Muppets. We... Uh, celebrate the piano and there's much, much more. It is an absolutely belting issue. It is available right now in all good news agents, evil news agents and virtual news agents. So there you go. Go and buy it. Happy Christmas, everybody. Should we have another guest? Which star of Christopher Nolan's 2006 Cracker at the Prestige do you want? (laughs) Do you want Christian Bale or Hugh Jackman? Let's start with someone who did twice the work and talked to Christian Bale. Oh, okay. Spoiler alert. Uh, all right. Uh, it's 16 years ago. It's totally fine. Uh, yes, indeed. Christian Bell. He uh, making his second appearance on the podcast this year. And if he hadn't been sick around the time of Thor, Love and Thunder, this would have been his third appearance on the podcast this year. Honestly, Christian Bell, we get it. You're obsessed with the Empire podcast. You want to appear on the Empire podcast. If you want to be part of the team, get in touch. You know where to find us. Uh, anyway, he is reuniting with Scott Cooper, his old mucker with whom he made uh, Out of the Furnace and Hostiles for a murder mystery with a bit of a twist. It is the pale blue eye uh, in which he plays a detective who is investigating an, um, an old-timey murder. And uh, You can tell it's old-timey because he teams up at a, at a military academy with a cadet by the name of Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, that Edgar Allan Poe. And it's a very gothic mystery, so it's right up Edgar Allan Poe's street. And Edgar Allan Poe in this is played by... Um, one of the Dursleys. That's right. The, the little mm. fella. Dudley. Dudley. Dudley, Dudley mm. Dursley. Harry Melling. Harry Melling, to give him his actual name uh, from the Harry Potter movies. And uh, and Christian Bell's character is played by Christian Bell from the Batman movies. So, right. yeah, it's all good. Uh, so anyway, we had a chat, uh, Christian Bell and I, a couple of weeks ago. He was in London. I popped into a one of those 
junket rooms and had a big old chat with him and it doesn't start in the conventional sense so it just kind of starts so it's a conversation that just starts we're mid-conversation probably um, and then it goes into unexpected areas so here's me talking to Christian Bell do you please enjoy what about yourself are you following the World Cup or are you just I listening am. to it I am yeah. Yeah. not right now but there's right. a game happening right now I believe Who's Switzerland playing? Cameroon oh okay right <laughs> I, I feel uh, I, you know why the teams that you know I have to watch it's Wales, uh-huh. England, United States, and Serbia. I know Serbia are playing later today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I believe tomorrow is US versus England. Is that That's tomorrow? Right, yeah. Yes, yeah. that'll be fantastic because <laughs> I have, you know, American, Serbian American wife. Yes. And my kids, of course, they're British citizens yeah, yeah. as well as US, but they, they've grown up in America. Yeah. So we'll love it with me going, England, USA, USA. And I won't mind who wins, but, my, but you know, I do still find myself getting teary-eyed for England when it's the World Cup. What know? about next week when there's England-Wales? Well, is that going to be a big know, one? I know, right? And there's Gareth Bale. Yeah. Who I just, I, I hope, I like to imagine that we're related somehow. <laughs> and he also, um, the Welsh when, Bales. when, when uh, I was in Spain, I used to get very good tables at restaurants. Um, and then they would look very disappointed when I walked in. <laughs> <laughs> Christian, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that anyone would look disappointed. True. Really, when you walk, in, when you walk in a true. restaurant, yes. people are disappointed. I would walk in and they'd go, or oh, bail, and they'd all be looking, and then they'd go, oh, him. <laughs> it's just a kind of movie. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. All right, okay. That's completely true. Uh, all right, well, let's, well let's, we're on a podcast. We're talking about podcasts. What about you? Are, are you a big podcast listener? I'm, I'm not really. But I, there's one guy called Dan Carlin, mm-hmm. who I do listen to. Sometimes he's, he does history mm-hmm. things. So he does very good kind of um, uh, uh, like sort of six, eight hour things that you can really get into. So I tend Probably just to listen bats. to them actually when I'm working, as I'm driving to work. I like mm-hmm. to listen to uh, his podcasts. But I'm a bit of a Luddite, and so I don't know many others and I don't like putting apps on my phone so I happen to stumble across him somehow and I'm like that's it that's it I don't go looking for things so you haven't for example delved into podcasts as a way of doing extra research on a a role like this for example I imagine there are lots of what would you have suggested as an example oh really I'm I'm, I'm just imagining there's lots of lots of podcasts that that might be on this realm well there are certain directors I know Jim Cummings the the American director Jim Cummings likes to record screenplays as podcasts before the start of the filming he says it helps enormously I do I look at a lot of different things I watch documentaries and I record certain bits or I make lots of notes. I'm old school like that. Like instead of just recording stuff, I don't even know how to do that. Mm. I just write it down. And I have tons <laughs> of notes that I then try to riffle through on the set. And then I can't find them and just go, oh, fuck it and go do it anyway. <laughs> but I'm like, I know I had something that would have been interesting in this yeah, scene, yeah. but I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah. So your, your, your script is just annotated. It's just covered wall yes. to wall. Yes. Has it, has it always been the way for you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. And, and on this one, there's on also some. There is something too, though, that yeah. when you write it yourself, in ink or pencil, you own it. You know, you really mm. do. You remember it. Mm. Uh, if you can write it from memory, I find anyway. Yeah. That then once I do that, then I I can remember it. I'd say forever, but I, I've trained my memory just to remember things in great detail for one day. <laughs> and then, you know, and then by the following day, I've absolutely forgotten it. <laughs> so, and my, my life is just constantly remembering. I know something really interesting about that, but I can't remember what. Yeah. <laughs> and then two years later on the press tour, when it comes up, you go, I have no, no fucking idea. idea. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what that is. 
But that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, so so that that approach. I mean, are you? Is there a, a point in your career when you're when you go into a movie day one? Do you always feel one hundred percent on top of things, or is there Absolutely a sense not. of no? I like, no, I like that. I, li- I like not thinking that I'm on top of things. I try as hard as I can to feel like I'm on top of things, um, and I'm, I'm always I'm always curious, you know, um, with with what I call real actors who have trained. Uh-huh. If they genuinely do feel on top of things when they begin, but for myself, I think I always have a slight insecurity because I never really trained, and so I feel like I don't know what people did in school, yeah. and so I've got to do something, and I just make it up myself, and fingers crossed, it'll work out. Um, but I never, I, but I do enjoy that. I have to say, there's a nice excitement about that, and then also you're still kind of figuring it out and discovering it, and even though that doesn't sound ideal. It actually makes for, I think, more interesting process and therefore a more interesting film. Yeah. Well, what about on something on something like this when you're working with a director and you'd like to work with directors again and again and again throughout your career? You're working with Scott now for the third time yeah. on The Pale Blue Eye. Does that make the process easier, especially when you're for friends with someone? It makes it simpler because okay. we understand each other more. We've, we've, we, you know, we've been through it you know, because every single film, it's like a whole sort of military maneuver with the amount of people that are involved that it's just unfathomable still to me after having done this for decades. Mm. I still don't truly understand why there are so many people. You, know? <laughs> you turn up for a scene with one person sometimes yeah. and there'll be truck after truck after truck and you've got to figure out the parking and you get, and it's like, it's a tiny little scene just with one person, surely we don't need or but I've never quite fathomed that. But it's, it, it, is a, it is a small um, uh, army um, that you have. Um, and, um, and I've completely forgotten why we started talking about that. We were talking about working with Scott and how that... Um, so, so the yeah, there's, there's, a good, there's a good sort of, you know, common language between us. I, I, I guess it's just that, look, I, I, I enjoy his vision. It's the same with other directors who I've worked with numerous times. I kind of understand what they're going for. They obviously enjoy me being beside them, um, understanding their vision, helping them to do that. And um, and so, uh, you know, yeah, thank God they keep coming back and asking me to do it again. Is that important that the director and the actor get on? Or can, can good on. work come from a kind of adversarial I think good work can come from an adversarial relationship. But, but, I, but I think, uh, uh, you know, in my experience, not from an egotistical adversarial relationship, but in a way of both caring passionately about what you're going after mm. um, and a great respect for each other, but a real passion for what you're doing. And that that's, sometimes that can cause disagreements. But I always know, hey, there's, there's, there's a pecking order. There must be, you know, films, I, I don't believe any good film um, is ever um, made by committee. Mm. You know, you, you, I, I work with, but ultimately push comes to shove, I work for director oh, really? so yeah, I'll, I'll always yeah. i'll always be there and i'll have plenty of suggestions and if he turns up and he's just got so much on his plate directors have so much more on their plate yeah to think about so if he's been spinning lots of plates and he's kind of forgotten what he wanted to do i'll be able to just go all right mate i'll take this one yeah, and yeah. i'll kind of show him what i feel like he was going for and remind him and but if he goes no that's a load of bollocks christian then i go okay then that's that <laughs> tell me what else is it? You know, but also given given direct, some directors like a lot of choices mm-hmm. in the edit room. Mm-hmm. Other directors don't want choice. They're like, no, just give me this one thing. Let's just keep chasing this one thing, and then I'll say when we got it. And just understand what each director is looking for, what style they they have. So I'm I'm guessing um, 
you've worked with Terence Malick over the years, yeah. you know, a couple of times as well. Is he more in the latter camp? He knows what he wants, or is he is he someone who's searching? He, well, he knows very much what he wants, but he doesn't yeah. write a script in the last ones. That well, I was meant. Um, yeah, so we did the New World. There yeah. was a script for that, but then he most of the time ignores it. Right, um, a little bit similar to like Werner Herzog as well. Werner, I would go to him and I would say lines, and he'd go, "Oh, it was such a good line." And I'd say, well, you wrote it. And he was like, oh, really? You're still reading the script? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's good, mate. It's yours. Um, uh, David Russell would do that as well. Um, like, okay, I'd say I'd lines and he'd be like, oh, that was great. And I was like, yeah, that was in the 13th. That was in number two draft when I was number 15. <laughs> but I remember that one. And Terry, as we, the, the last film that we did, Night of Cups, and I love working with Terry, um, he, uh, there was no script and he would just give everyone a page. And that was it. And most mornings he would just hand me a page in the morning as the camera was rolling and just go, take a read of that. They'd usually film me as I was reading it. And it would give a rough idea of what I was going to do that day, thoughts I might have, things I might say if I feel like it, but I don't have to if I don't want to. And then, you know, all right, we're already filming. You know, we just go, <laughs> okay. And you, you begin. That's uh, wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. View, every, every, I mean. So that's why. I never turn up on a on a film set knowing what I'm going to do because it's 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 uh, really about cooperation with the director and figuring that out as you go. I want to talk about about Scott and his his approach as well because he's always struck me as someone who's quite meticulous. I've, I've yes. had the good fortune to interview him a number of times over the years. Yeah. Um, but but just picking up off that, first of all, I wanted to talk about quickly about Adam McKay because yeah. you've worked twice with him, and on on something like Feist. Where the performance is so specific yeah. and so I guess informed also by the prosthetics. I've been on Adam sets as well. I know he likes to yell alts at actors and you know yeah. and then you then you you repeat the alts. Yes. Was that your experience? I mean Absolutely. And, and is it the yeah. same when you're in your you know you're playing? Yeah, yeah. So so Adam Adam's sitting there, you know, with a mic and uh and um and uh, he's a very funny guy. Yeah. And sometimes it was just like I couldn't I was just sort of just uh, crying and trying to get through scenes and uh, he was hilarious um and uh but yeah thrown out alts and everything and and you know there is always a really beautifully written script yeah and we always get that script first but he gets that and then he goes all right you know i always say let the pig loose which is <laughs> that's a that's what Werner would always say to me I like Werner, he's a very memorable guy. And he would he would get the thing and then he would go, let the pig loose, which would mean like anything you want. Just do anything. It could be the craziest shit you've ever come across, mm -hmm. but just go for it. And it might be great, you know. And so that's also what Adam does. Um, but chucking it out at you. Yeah. And then Scott, uh, as we can go Scott, Scott. meticulous is absolutely the word. He's a very precise director. He has a he's he's relentless in his vision. I really enjoy that. I, you know. I really enjoy working with, there's a few different directors I've, I've worked with numerous times, all completely different in the way they approach um, filmmaking. And, and, and really that shows complete difference in the way they approach life as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, life is chaos and total randomness. Mm -hmm. and, and then how do they approach that and live in a better life, right? And is yeah. it you just accept it and embrace it and surrender yourself to it and enjoy it and keep your humor? Or is it something where you go, no, I refuse to accept it's chaos. I'm the, I want answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Scott's more like that. Like, you know, he fights against that chaos 
and he wants to find an answer. And it's great watching the energy that he has in trying to uh, combat the uh, the chaos. And he's he's also, I mean, the three films that we've made together mm -hmm. are very much obsessed with the ethics of revenge yeah. as well. And the the Scott has actually a really fascinating family history. Like he's, you know, he 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 makes films very much about America, and um, he has such an American tradition and history, you know, and come from Virginia, um, and uh, sort of a a, a very um, um, Shakespearean uh, mm. family history, which mm. is fascinating. And there's a there's a kind of a, a, a chilliness as well to, to this movie, and, uh, and there's something right. that I think it extends. You know, there's there's warmth obviously in, in in Out of the Furnace, and and Hostiles is is emotionally brutal <laughs> that film, but there is a chilliness as well I think to to a lot of his work, but that doesn't seem to be present in the man himself. Is that something that you? No, not at all. Yeah, no. No, I, I really think it is in, 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 as I was describing, him sort of trying to work out life and what has happened and how do you best deal with that? Mm. You know? And almost every film, right? Yeah. Would it be correct to say almost every film is about trying to figure out how to live a better life? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, right. Yeah. yeah. We're, in, we're coming to Christmas now. Mm. We're in It's a Wonderful Life territory. That's that's what it's all about. Right. Yeah, ultimately, at the end of the day. But but um, just want to ask one last thing about, about you and Scott. When did you, when do you know you click with a director? Is it on Out of the Furnace? Is there a moment um, when you Yeah, think it, you know, look, you can talk an awful lot, um, uh, but you don't really truly know until, for me, it would be a few days into filming when you actually are showing what you have believed you've been talking about. Mm. And it's amazing how much in communication between another human being that we talk and we think we understand each other. And then, you know, I'll go do a scene and they'll go, what was, that? what was that? And I'll realize, oh, no, no, all right. I didn't understand anything. And I thought, so you click when you go, you go do a scene, and they go, that was it. No, yeah. what was that? Yeah. Yeah. And what you don't want that is to come halfway through the shoot when you want that earlier on. You want that earlier if on. Possible. Yeah. Yes. Has that ever happened to you where you've, you've been, you know, a long way into a shoot and then you find a character? Um, I think you're always finding it. You yeah. Know? And I think that's an ideal. And I do. I, I wonder. You know, you always feel like when you finish a film, like you'd love to go back and shoot it all again. Yeah. Because now you go, oh my god, now I I could do that scene so much better than I did, or there were these things. That I, I'm not certain. I don't know if it actually would be any better because it, it might be a little bit too polished. Yeah. You yeah. Know? I mean, it depends yeah. on the style of the film that you're going for. But um, it, even though that's always the instinct, is that you want to go back and do it again, and you're kicking yourself. Um, you know, there might be something to the messiness of figuring it out as you go along that is actually uh, more fascinating. Absolutely. Well, Christian, uh, I'm going to let you go. Uh, and good luck with uh, any restaurant re reservations in the in the wake of Invent Wales. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think yes. it'll be all right. Brilliant. Cheers, <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Okay, so that was Christian Bell and The Pale Blue Eye is out in cinemas this weekend and will be on Netflix very, very soon indeed, if it's not already. I don't know. I didn't write that bit down. Anyway... What do you want from me? Professionalism is the end of the year. I've switched off. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, 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 yes. So, um, this is the last podcast of the year, folks. And it's not just the last podcast of the year. It's the last regular Emperor podcast for the next two weeks. We are taking the next two weeks off, uh, what we consider to be a well-deserved break. Uh, we will have the review of the year podcast that is recorded, that is in the bag. That's going to be going up next Friday, December 30th, in lieu of the regular podcast. But then, there's going to be no podcast at all on January 6th. Is this a mistake? Will this allow our competitors to catch up to us? 
and overtake us and then ultimately kill us? Who knows? It's going to be fun finding out. But we will be back on January 13th. January 13th. And part of that is because I'd already planted a flag in the sand for episode 550 on February 3rd. <laughs> and so that we had to take two weeks off, essentially, in order to make that date. But so. it's fine, Chris, because the Pilot TV podcast is only taking one week off. The and Pilot we'll be back TV on the podcast, 9th of January. The Pilot TV podcast rests for, for no one. <laughs> it waits for no man. It's inexorable and That's unavoidable, it. like time itself. We absolutely will not stop until you are dead. Uh, it's, yes, yes. I don't negotiate with terrorists, Jimbo, but yes. Uh, the Pilot TV podcast will be there to fill your your podcast requirements uh, during our absence. But uh, what it means is there's a couple of films to talk about in Dispatches. We're not going to get into hardcore, well, not hardcore. <laughs> there's going to be no fucking in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're not going to get into into long reviews of the likes of Sam Mendes's Empire of Light, which comes out on January 9th. Suffice to say that it's very, very good. You should probably go see it. We're going to focus on the films that are going to be out in the multiplexes and the sofaplexes over the next week and a half or so, really, to tide you over the Christmas period. Um, we've reviewed Glass Onion and White Noise on the podcast already, so we'll, we'll review those in a more concise style very, very soon. But first of all, The Pale Blue Eye. Hell's Bells, The Pale Blue Eye. Scott Cooper, reunited with Christian Bell. I have really enjoyed both of their previous collaborations. What can you say about this one? Yeah, I didn't. So I was I went into this rather <laughs> trepidatiously, but um but no, it wasn't it wasn't quite what I was expecting. So yes, um Christian Bale plays a sort of retired cop who's living in a cottage basically in the middle of the countryside near West Point. And that is crucial because uh, that when the school has a problem and their reputation is at risk, they call him in to to investigate because one of their cadets appears to have, first of all, killed himself, uh, hung himself from a tree. But crucially, his heart has then been cut from his body and has gone missing. There appears to be a maniac around who is engaged in possibly satanic rituals. So Landor, Christian Bale's character, has is called in and set to investigating this nice series of crimes and trying to figure out uh, who done it. And, and he kind of accepts the help of this odd you know, slightly shy, slightly hesitant uh, cadet, uh, who is Edgar Allan Poe, played, of course, by Harry Melling, as discussed. And they have to investigate, uh, basically, everyone around, try and figure out what what is up. Um, really, really good supporting cast. You've got people like Robert Duval, Gillian Anderson, Toby Jones, Lucy Boynton, Charlotte Gainsborough, in a very thankless small role, Timothy Spall's in there, Simon McBurney. Really, really good people. Um, mm-hmm. Not... I, I would say a hundred percent successful. It's very like Scott Cooper's previous films. It's 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 very slow at times, it's quite ponderous. Yeah, it's mannered. Yeah, and um and it does lean into the kind of gothic atmosphere, but in ways that don't always, I think, help the story the way that I hoped they would. But it you know it did have a couple of it did have a couple of twists and turns that I enjoyed. Um, so so yeah, I didn't I didn't hate it, but I I wasn't wild about it either. I, I felt we were a bit harsh in this. We gave us one two stars, which I thought was uh, yeah. a bit harsh. I think I think it's very much you could you could see this playing as a triple bill with Out of the Furnace and with Hostiles uh, in particular. It's you know Scott Cooper is a very uh, meticulous and slightly chilly filmmaker, mm. um, but I, I'm still fascinated by his films. I, I'm one of the few people who liked Antlers when it came out two years ago, and he's quite prolific as well. And I think he's he's got there's some really interesting things going on in this movie. I thought Harry Melling was excellent. 
Uh, we could have very yeah, mannered Southern yeah. accent as Edgar Allan Poe, but it's it's really good. There's Edgar Allan Poe was not from the South either, so that's an interesting choice. Uh, I guess, but he, well, whatever accent he's doing, that's what the accent he's doing. Uh, there's an interesting little wrinkle that struck me when I was watching the movie. For the first five minutes of the film, every actor who speaks with an American accent is British. <laughs> mm, yes, I noticed that as well. A Every, lot of Laura yeah. Laura Brits. Laura Laura Brits doing a Laura Laura American accents, and mm. uh, I thought I was I was taken in by the central mystery. I was I was quite engaged by the characters. I thought we were a little bit harsh in it, to be honest. I don't think it's up there with hostiles, but it's it's good stuff for me. But we give this one two stars, two stars then for the pale blue eye. And next up, we have Ficky Creeps or Ficky Creps. Um, she told us whenever we interviewed her in the podcast that either is acceptable uh, in Corsage. Again, Hell's Bells. Mm. Take us through this one. It's me, yes. This is, uh, this is an interesting uh, decision. So this comes from director and writer Amari Kritzer. And it's an account of one year in the life of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. If you're a certain kind of person who grew up watching the cartoons, that is Cece. She was known as Cece uh, at the time. And she was she was a very long reigning and massively influential and famous woman of the 1800s. So this is one year in her life from sort of late 1877 to, to late 1878. And it's not the most obviously exciting year. Just just to be clear, like mm. this woman was assassinated at the end of her life, which this film doesn't cover. Um, her her son was involved in a murder suicide. She was involved in the reunification uh, in the unification of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. She made it the Austro and Hungarian Empire. So she had a lot of shit going on. And this isn't the most obviously cinematic year as a result. But what it does give Kurtzer is a fantastic kind of canvas to look at you know, kind of pivotal moments away from the big obvious stuff in her life. So this is a real character study, really drilling down into what it's like to be this much at a remove from everyone around you, to be so kind of constricted and constrained, first of all, by court life and by all the rules of your station, but also physically constrained by her corsets. That's the corsage of the title refers to corseting, because she was also obsessed with keeping her weight down. She was obsessed with exercise. She was in some ways quite ahead of her time and in other ways definitely had an eating disorder, which was uh, is quite upsetting at times. If you are likely to be triggered by that kind of thing, do not watch this film. But she was also being, you know, castigated in the press anytime they thought she'd put on weight. Uh, this is a woman who was 50 kilos throughout her life, for God's <laughs> sake. Um, very, very tiny person. So, so it's this weird thing of she's trying to exercise control over everything she can, um, but also events keep spinning out of her control and kind of getting away from her. It's a really weird biopic as well. Like It is not terribly concerned with... Um, with anachronism. So in the same way that Marie Antoinette did, but more so, if you are keeping your eye out, you will see a lot of modern stuff in this film. So just in the corridors of the Royal Palace, there are electric lights. And I was like, well, 1877, maybe mm. they had electric lights. They definitely didn't have this kind of electric light that you're going to see sometimes in this film. There's a bit where a carriage pulls up behind a tractor. And again, I was like, I mean, I guess they had maybe some kind of tractor in 1877. Did a little bit of digging. Digging. No, definitely not this kind of tractor. And then by the end of the film, it's very, very, very clear that that strict historical accuracy in every respect is not what she's going for. So it gives you this really weird sideways look in at her life where it's almost like the modern age and our modern concerns are kind of seeping into this ancient tale. And I thought that was really effective, actually, and really interesting. 
So through it all, you have Vicky Creeps being just magnetic and absolutely fascinating as this incredibly bright woman stuck in this incredibly stupid position and trying to sort of find a way through it. I thought she was absolutely astonishing in this. But yeah, it's it's just a weird film. I, I really do recommend watching it if you like any kind of biopic because it's so different from the norm. Mm even when it's doing the normal things. It's been compared really in abstract terms to The Favourite a little bit. Uh, there's a li- there's little bits of that. There's the same sense of, I think, irreverence for its subject matter and, and the same sense of, um, you know, kind of scatological kind of humour at times, mm. probably. Uh, so th- there's a little bit of that. Certainly some of that, certainly some of Marie Antoinette. But it's very much its own thing and it does feel very different from either. All right. Well, we give us one four stars then. Four stars for Corsage, a very untraditional biopic. Speaking of traditional biopics, though, we have Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Uh, Shall we sing along in the car to the other day? Great song. Um, (laughs) Great song, great song. But uh, we haven't seen this yet, but uh, Empire has seen this and we gave it three stars. So it seems like a fairly standard conventional biopic that has a great Naomi Aki performance as Whitney Houston at its centre. So that one is out. That one's out in cinemas on Boxing Day along with Corsage. And uh, we've talked about them already on the podcast. We don't have a lot of time left. So we're just going to say that uh, Noah Baumbach's White Noise is out on the 30th on Netflix. And Helen, you really liked this when you talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, Adaptation of the unadaptable Don DeLillo novel, but somehow Baumbach has has managed it. Uh, it's had fairly mixed receptions, I would say, in, in some, some quarters. Some people think he didn't pull it off, but you think he, he did? Although it's one of the few books yeah. you've actually read. I think it's a very kind of all over the place uh, experience. You have to be ready for the film to basically change entirely every, you know, a half hour or so. Uh, but at the same time, so much of what was in there really, really amused me or, or made me laugh. And I thought it was a really good portrayal of a family. So, so overall, I, I, yeah, I did like it, but I wasn't, um, I, I didn't love it as much as maybe I hoped. All but right. yeah, it's still fun. Still fun, still fun. And that's out on Netflix on the 30th. And then obviously today, as you're listening to this on the 23rd, we have Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery, The Return of Benoit Blanc. Very different film, stylistically, tonally, and, uh, well, I almost gave something away there, uh, from <laughs> the front than the original movie. Uh, but for my money, I enjoyed this one a little bit more. Uh, I had a real blast with it. It's a very, very funny film. And watching Benoit Blanc do his thing is one of the great pleasures of the last few years for me cinematically mm. speaking and I cannot wait to see where Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig take these characters next it's, it is a perfect film to watch over Christmas as well because it's just it's just pure bottled joy isn't it like trading in the, mm. the kind of cable knit sweaters and autumnal Massachusetts for you know swimming suits and, and Mamma Mia-esque Greek islands like it's it's yeah. sunny <laughs> it's funny it's more deliberately comedic than the first one yes. it's, it's a delight actually I'd say the first one's very yeah. deliberately comedic it's just, it is because the chilly atmosphere in doesn't ter- inter- and yeah. well literally chilly atmosphere but it's um it's more deliberately I think consistently funny this one is it made me laugh a lot more than the first one I don't know that I prefer it to the first one mm. but I think it's more comedic what I'm really looking forward to is double billing them one after one after mm. other, if I'm able to find five hours uh, of of time to do that. Blonkety uh, Blonk. Now the football's back and the darts is on as well, oh, so it's gosh. really tricky for me to do that. But uh, yes, Blonkety Blonk indeed. Time to fill in the Blonks. Uh, we gave us one four stars, but I think uh, I'd be in the five camp on that one. Uh, and there are films out in early January. There's Sam Mendes' Empire of Light. There is Till. There is a Antonio Banderas action movie called The Enforcer. And not to be confused with the uh, the... Dirty Harry movie of the same name and there's also the Tom Hanks comedy A Man Called Otto a remake of A Man Called Ova but we'll review those when we're back on the 13th of January 
because that's pretty much it for this week's Empire Podcast and this year's Empire Podcasts with one very notable exception. Talk about finishing on a high, or should I say, finishing on a hue wordplay. See why we won an award this year, can't yeah. you? Yes, indeed. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman is the final guest of the Empire podcast. Uh, he is the star, the Golden Globe nominated star, and maybe who knows, more nominations might be in the offing for him once BAFTA and Oscar have their say, of The Sun, which is Florian Seller's follow up, but not sequel to, despite the title, The Father, in which he plays a man whose life is turned upside down unexpectedly. The film is not out until February, but uh, Hugh Jackman was available this week. Wanted to be on the podcast this week. And who are we, frankly, to say no to Hugh Jackman? Helen, due to a restraining order, was unavailable to talk to Hugh Jackman. And so we sent along Amon Warman onto the frozen wastes of Zoom to have a chat with Hugh Jackman instead. And uh, much fun, I am told, was had by all. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the star of the sun, Mr. Hugh Jackman. How are you, sir? Good and how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm gearing up for Christmas. Well, when it comes to Christmas, are you someone who likes to be prepared months in advance with all the presents and the trimmings? And how excited for you are, are you for that break? Mm, I'm someone who likes to be, but never is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really jealous of people like someone at work the other day at the theatre. It was like two weeks ago. I said, no, I finished all my Christmas shopping. I was like, it's December 1. You're done. Like, I and then now I'm like, yeah, running late. But I'm always running late, even though I don't want to be. Yeah. Yep. I know that feeling. I'm going to try and do some last minute cramming <laughs> for the next few days or so. Uh, but but I, I, I really enjoy it. I find, I, it's fun. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. I just had some family flying from Australia, actually. Um, so, yeah, when, when, I, when I told them that I was speaking to you today, though, they were very excited. Um, and I was speaking to you today because of the sun. Your performance in this is incredible. It really wrecked me. I, I I was reading that you said, I've never been so scared to get a part or to not get a part. Now, I was wondering if you could unpack that. What, what was it about this role that made you feel that way? Well, I reached out to, I kind of chased the part, um, and I reached out to the director, wrote him a letter. I laid my cards on the table. I said, I want it. <laughs> Terrible poker playing. Uh, but <laughs> it, was, it was something about, this. first of all, the story, the writing, Florian as a director, right? I loved the father. Um, I love him as a playwright. And I think there was something, there's something urgent I felt about it. I'm, I'm sort of holding my heart because I, mm. as I read, I was like, oh, oh, this is really challenging in every way as a story, for an, as an actor, as a father, <laughs> as mm. a son. There were so many things about it that I found very challenging. And I was excited by that. That's the part that was, I'm terrified not to get the part mm. and terrified because it was such beautiful writing. I knew it was taking me to places perhaps I had rarely had a chance to go as an actor. Um, and you know, these things only come along once in a while. So I just didn't want to mess it up. Basically, that's the terrified of getting it It'd yeah. be easier if I didn't get it. In some <laughs> well, you didn't mess it up. So congratulations on that. I. I heard that there were no rehearsals for this film. And mm. you strike me as a person who likes to prepare as much as possible beforehand. Were you doing anything else to ensure that you were ready as you mm. could possibly be for day one on set? And what was day one on set like? I did I did a lot of research. I, I love doing research. One of the great things about my job is I really get to 
get into worlds that I never would get into. So whether I'd, I spent some time here with a lawyer, a New York lawyer, I want to know what that was about. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of reading around the mental health crisis and how parents and how families deal with it. I did it around second marriages and with new babies and trying to juggle kids between two homes. You know, these are all things I looked into. And I remember I'd be talking to Florian, the director, and mm. and I sent him all my research and he was like, this is all really good, but I think this is maybe this whole thing is probably a bit closer than you think. I don't know if you have to think too far outside of who you are and, and your own life experience. And, and that's why he didn't want to rehearse. He wanted something very elemental, something raw. He knew the emotions were really strong. He didn't want to feel like we were trying to hit something or had a place to go. He wanted us just to trust the process. And, uh, you know, he's a theater guy, so he loves rehearsal and knows it, but that was his instinct with this. And so I just sort of gave over. We also weren't allowed to look at the monitor, Mm. which is also a bit hard for me. Normally I like to just check in and have a look. Um, So the whole exercise was was a lot of letting go, a lot of trust and Thankfully, we had a director with great vision and great strength, and I had sort of innate trust in him. Mm. Was there a day or moment on set that you felt things really click into place and that you really had a handle on this character? I kind of felt it early on, Mm. very early on. You asked me about the first day of set. I think I was, uh, first day of set, I did a quite difficult scene with Zen, and this is one of, not his first movie, but his first big movie. This is uh, Sam McGrath, who played my son in the movie, played Mm. Nicholas. I was, we were I, it kind of like we sort of clicked in really quickly. At the same time and on, I'll be honest, I was a bit of a hot mess during this. I wasn't sleeping very well, which was unusual for me. I think the story matter, my father passed away during the movie. Mm. It's a lot going on. And I figured in a way my character is someone where there's a lot going on and he's desperate to feel like he's coping and changing things for the better and that he's in control. So I kind of thought, as an actor, I'm going to just let go of control. And so whilst I say it, it dropped in pretty quick, I never really felt settled. I want to backtrack. You said that you're working with Zen McGrath then. I wanted to uh, ask about that because he plays his son, Nicholas. I imagine that you tested with a few actors before you found Zen. Did you immediately? Oh, you didn't. No. Uh, what, 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 what was the process there? There was just a process that... that um, I told you I was scared of getting the part or not getting the part. I, when I went to speak with Florian, I didn't expect, nor did he have a plan to offer me the part. But seven minutes into our conversation, he just mm. stopped. I said, I, I want you to play it. I feel it in my, my body. I feel it in my bones. He goes with his gut instinct. So casting is something he loves and it's something that he has control over. And he, I remember him ringing me and said, I think I've found Nicholas. Mm. And he sent me a tape, I think. Maybe he didn't even send me a tape, and I just trusted. I can't even remember now. I just trusted him, and that was that was the way it went all along. It's interesting because the story, like the father of the movie, takes you inside the head of someone dealing with dementia and losing their bearings and what it's like to be them. The son, even though the story is around a 17-year-old boy who's going through a mental health crisis, it's actually you're in the heads of the people around him. Uh, the people trying to cope with it, the family and all of that. So it's, uh, it was an interesting, the whole thing was a really, really interesting process. And Zen has this incredible, like um, mercurial quality. 
Mm. He, as an actor, and it's a wonderful gift to have, it's he's playing two or three things at the same time and it's hard to kind of get a grip. It's hard to understand, which I think is what it's like for people around. It's, uh, there's, it's hard to understand the mood of someone going through that, why it's happening. It's never really clear or linear. And mm-hmm. so Zen just had that and, and he did a brilliant, brilliant job. His father's the same age as me, Craig. Oh, wow. And I have a 17 and a 22 year old. So I was, I could see him. He was shaking. You know, mm. just <laughs> these scenes. I can't imagine how nerve wracking that was for him. Yeah. Yeah. No, Zen does, I think, a really good job with a really tricky role. Um, and to that point, I'm wondering that there's a lot of heavy scenes between you two in this film. What's the aftermath of a heavy scene like? Are you a person who likes to bring in that levity or do you prefer to stay in it? No. I think there's more levity, although in the middle of it while we're filming, you have to be very mindful, particularly if it was a scene, for example, the psychiatric hospital scene. Mm. scene was That was a very, very draining scene, particularly for him, and long, you know, five, six-minute scenes. He went through a lot of emotion. Mm. There you're sort of holding an atmosphere. There's an atmosphere that's sort of being held. It's like a space. It's, you know, you know, you go into a library, the library's always a library. You know, it's, it doesn't really matter what you're reading. There's the same thing, the atmosphere. It was a bit like that. Um, whereas quite often Zen and I would joke around afterwards, mm. got to know each other well and hang out and feel comfortable with each other. Um, but in the really heavy scenes, yeah, we were sort of still in the zone. I wanted to ask about working with the great Anthony Hopkins. Um, who shows up in this film. Obviously, you know, he's Anthony Hopkins, but then this is the son coming after the father and he's playing that character. I imagine you had certain amount of expectations for that day working with him. How did reality meet expectations? Uh, they exceeded them, which was <laughs> hard because my expectations were super high. Mm. You know, I'll tell you a couple of little stories about it. Yeah. First of all, the director told me that, um, Anthony would email him almost every day for about six months with ideas about the character. I mean, wow. this is a one scene part. Wow. Yeah. And he said, I got the same amount of emails from him, him on this film as I did on the father when he's in every scene. Wow. The other thing that happened, he was, I think due to get there at seven, seven thirty. he woke up at three 30, apparently so excited that he got there at five. It was just him and the locations guy there at this, at this house. Wow. Um, <laughs> he was super excited and raring to go. And, He'd finished his side of it by night, 9.30 in the morning. And then we turned around and did my side mm. and at the dining room table. And then he just, he said to Florian, do you mind if I go again? And I, mm. Florian said, of course, and we had time. And, and I said to Florian on the side, I said, why, why do you think he wants to go in? Like, it was amazing. From take one, amazing. Jeez. And he said, I think he just misses acting. Because of mm. coming to get acted in 18 months, he just loves it. He's like mm. a racehorse chomping at the bit. He, it, it's, it's so amazing to see someone so good at what they do. They make it so easy for you as an actor, but also it's clear he's born to do it. He, he just loves it. The Sun started out life as a play. Is there any scene that you'd be excited to try and tackle on the stage? Oh, yeah. So many of them. Mm. I, I kept thinking about that. I think this would be a wonderful thing to do. The, 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 the rising tension, the scenes with the son where he ends up pushing him over that scene. Mm. Actually, the scene with Anthony is not in the play because yeah. it's one scene, I guess, that, you know, didn't think of getting an actor in to just do one scene. That's an mm. ad. That's an ad, which I think 
was so important for the film because it's at that point that everyone kind of goes, oh, I'm the son. It's yeah. not. You know. I think those scenes with the boy were where he kind of loses it with his mm-hmm. kid. You yeah. know, ends up saying things that he regrets, doing things that he regrets. And there's not a parent I know, including myself, that hasn't been in that situation where they just go, after it's like, why did I say that? Yeah. Why did I come out? And, and because nothing pushes your buttons more than your kids. Nothing. I'd be very intrigued to, to see how I feel about this film when I do hopefully have kids later down the line. I don't have it right now. But I imagine there's an extra charge that comes with not only playing it, but also watching it as well when you have that. Yeah. I mean, you don't know this yet, but yeah. hopefully you will become a parent if, you know, yeah. if that's what, in the cars or what you want. But I remember my, my mum's had six kids and I was reading every book. Like I was a bit like mm. my father, read the book, the how-to books. There was, I had six of them by my bed, you know, with this. And, and my mum came into my bedroom. She said, oh, they're good for you. You're reading all those books. I said, yeah, thanks, Mum. She goes, well, I just want to give you one bit of advice. I can tell you right now, your kid won't have read them. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had six of them and none of them are like the other and none mm. of them match what they say in the books. It's, it's a humbling experience as a parent. Mm. You end up revisiting a lot of emotions. It touches off a lot of things from your own upbringing, things underneath, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Uh, the, the phrase, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child is absolutely true. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, but, a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling thing as well. It sounds like this film really found you at the right time. Uh, mm. Has there been any other role where you felt that serendipity when all the right things have come up, when the right role has come into your life at the right time? Lame is was another one. Mm. Ironically, they're the two movies that I've chased. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I can look back now and like something like Wolverine, I, I somehow felt better playing it when I was older. Mm. There's something about that character because he is old. Uh, I felt better playing it. It was harder physically. That part. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> the Boy From Oz, the thing I did on stage was another thing, another thing that I felt happened at the right time. Yeah. But in a way, I think what you learn about life is, they all happen at the right time, even if they're not what you expect, even if it's not what you'd hoped, even if it's difficult. You can look back and go, yeah, I can see why that happened. I can see why I did it. I can see why I got it. I can see why. Um, but, you, you know, you need a few go-arounds around the sun to work that out. <laughs> Absolutely. And from reading interviews and from talking to you, I know that this character is – close to who you are as a person because you've been asked to bring so much of yourself to it what's the character you played that's furthest from who you are and how freeing is that experience for you as an actor <laughs> wolverine that's very far away from who i am <laughs> although i'm one of those people that very rarely loses their temper but when i was a kid when that happened it was a little volcanic so i guess there, there's some um, there's some truth to that, but that kind of definitely, I think is de- that kind of character is definitely. And the first role I ever got, actually, I played a, um, a prisoner and I was in for armed robbery. And my, I remember my brother going, he goes, dude, your first role, you're playing a prisoner. He goes, you never even got in trouble at school. <laughs> Talking of how 
host this kind of is to you. I want to know how much of you is in the hips way that you do in the sun. I'm thinking that's at least 80% Jackman, at least. I think you're right. Uh, I, did, <laughs> I did run a few possibilities by my daughter. <laughs> and she stopped me half and she said, Dad, you said you got to do daggy dad, dad dancing. You don't need to do any research for that. You got it. <laughs> like most dads, I think I'm a lot cooler than I am. Uh, you mentioned Wolverine there. Uh, I was so excited to hear that you're going to be back as the character in a Deadpool movie. Uh, how would you characterize the relationship between Wade and Logan this time around? How do I categorize it? 10 being really close, zero being the reality. That's what we are. We're zero. We are opposites. Hate each other. I- I'm talking from my, let's just talk from my. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> He's annoyed by him, frustrated <laughs> by him, wants to be a million miles away from him or punch him in the head. So <laughs> I, unfortunately, he can't be a million miles away from him in this movie, so I'm mm. probably going to punch him in the head a lot. <laughs> that is a movie that I'm excited to watch. I know I know that you described it as 48 hours. Is it going to be taking place across that real time or is that just more in the no. relationship that you're talking about there? Just in the banter relationship. Just yeah. that sort of opposites, the... The he's you know, my vinegar to his sort of <laughs> like you know, the he's the fast talking, quick witted, loud mouth, and, and my character just wants to punch him in the head. <laughs> this is good. And this just, is this is five stars already. <laughs> when you told James Mangold that you'd be coming back as Wolverine, what was his reaction? Uh, he was actually really cool about it. I did tell okay. him that, that it took place before our movie, so I wasn't going to screw up with the, the <laughs> like claws coming out of the graves. So, <laughs> um, so he he was relieved by that, and um, and he thought it was really he totally got it. He thought it was a really good idea. Oh, awesome! I like that. I think it's a really good idea too. I, I initially for like a second when I saw the the announcement, I was like, huh. But Logan ended it so well, but then. When the details started coming out that, you know, Logan is going to be unaffected and all the rest of us, I was yeah. like, okay, that's what's Yeah, going to I didn't want to, none of us wanted to screw with that. I was really mm. proud of that movie and, and what we did. And, um, and it felt like perfect. And then actually, mm. for five years, I was really, honestly, I can tell you, <laughs> hard done. I was like, this is it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was August, August 14th. I remember driving and just came to me like that. And I just thought this would be so much fun. I'm going to, I'll probably have more fun on that movie than anything I've ever done. <laughs> What what year? So August 14? This year. This year? Oh, wow. Okay. And August 13, I was like, I'm never playing that part again. I promise you. <laughs> Interesting. What's your training regimen like this time around? Is it the same as what you've been doing in previous years? And has it gotten any easier in the interim? <laughs> no. It's got harder. Mm. Um, I'm doing eight shows a week right now, so I'm only lifting weights like three times a week. But I'll be getting into once or twice a day as soon as this is done in a month. Mm. And uh, I'll have six min- six months to prep, and I, I I always have the same approach every time I go in that I want I want it to be better than ever. I want to be in better shape than ever, more able to do things than ever. Um, and you know, I just get the added incentive of taking Ryan Reynolds out every day. So I really want to be in shape so I can enjoy. As motivation to go to work goes, that's, that's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> do you envision this as a one and done or do you, do you foresee more i imagine every movie is a one and done mm. that's how i see it I, I'll, I'll be honest i had a two picture deal at the beginning but i still assumed it was a one and done you know back then there were no comic movies so mm. 
I just um, I just take it one at a time. Mm. I'm, I'm lucky in that way. I don't have to think beyond that, but I think it's the best way to go. Hugh, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Take care, man. And uh, is that Aussie staying with you? They're staying for Christmas, yes. Uh, so yeah, I got. I... That's a rookie error having an Australian to stay for Christmas. <laughs> why is why is it rookie error? Because they'll be here next Christmas still. They want to. Hey, that's all good for them. That's all good with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you have a good one, sir. Thanks, no. Okay, so that was Hugh Jackman and that is a great note on which to end the Empire podcast and there are more things hitting the Spoiler Special subscribers channel over the next couple of uh, days and weeks as well including our Black Panther Wakanda Forever Spoiler Special with Ryan Coogler, SS Rajamuli on RRR and some other stuff as well that I found down the back of the Spoiler Special sofa just the other day. So very exciting times. But anyway, that is it. Folks, we are out of here. That is it for 2022. All that remains now is for me to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning all the way from Port Stewart, going to Harry's Shack, presumably, after this uh, <laughs> for their incredible food. It's goodbye oh, so to good. Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Yes, I'll be down at Harry's Shack. I'll be going to Higginson's Bakery. Oh, I'll be drinking coffee and Awaken. It's going to be great. It's Have fun. Be... Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Merry New Year. Merry New Year. Merry New Year. Merry New Year. <laughs> uh, Merry New Year to you, James Dyer. Yes. Merry New Year to you as well. Uh, and to everyone listening. Uh, don't forget to listen to the Pilot TV podcast as the as a Christmas oh, present boy. for me. As a Christmas present for you, I will not shit over that or or cut it out of the podcast or, or beep you uh, when you mention it this year. That's my special Christmas yeah. gift uh, to you. And it is goodbye from me as well. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for listening through the year and supporting the show and uh, being so uh, kind with my uh, change in life circumstances and all the, the kind things that people said to me over uh, and my wife over the last few uh, few months or so it really does mean a lot and we hope that you have a an incredible holiday season however you celebrate uh and an incredible 2023 that's hope we're all still alive come 2024 thanks so much for listening <laughs> i'd like to end on an up note thanks so much for listening see you next time bye bye